Let's head up toward uh, Oklahoma way. Good morning, Julie. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I, how are you? Did, are you? Did you enjoy the rain? Ah, listen, it was uh, it was very very welcome. I would have taken three times that much, but I'm thankful for every drop we got. <laughs> well, that's that's how we are here too. Yes, ma'am. We we just got a lot of cold weather. Okay, um, um, just to start off, I would like to know. We've been in our place for 26 years, and, um, you know, like all property, when you first start out, we built a house, and it was nice and sunny, and I could have all my zinnias and all that. <laughs> well, now it's not sunny at all, and right. I've really kind of lost, and I think that the beds are old, even though I've, I've been listening to you for about seven years, and I, I mean, I, I pour stuff on it and, you know, put compost and mulch and everything else but i i feel like i need to start over and i i don't know if that makes any sense at all but um i i don't know what to do with myself if i don't have some sun and i'm not going to cut down my trees (laughs) that's that's the other option is you know cut down the trees or move and neither one of those are viable options well tell me tell me what you feel that the issues with your soil are is it compaction is it things just don't seem to grow well and um that's what i'm thinking and the the i just think everything looks poor okay and i um i've you know i i I do. I bet I do ninety nine percent of the things you say to do, and I just think my problem is I think it's no sun. That's what I I face with, and I get. I'm learning as a gardener. There's a great difference between a sunny spot and a hot spot. Right. I mean, you know what I'm saying. I mean, it can be you can be under the tree, and I may may be a little cooler, but. It's just really hot. And so I'm getting no sun as far as just direct sun. Right. And but lots of heat. Sure. And so where where should I start? Well, you know, you basically you've got to start with a new plant palette. You're gonna have to grow okay. things that you're not used to growing because there simply is no substitute for sunlight. Uh it's the right. only, you know, plants make their energy through photosynthesis or or store their energy through photosynthesis and sunlight is what the driving factor is a certain wavelength of light i can't quote to you exactly how many angstrom units it is but it's uh, in the blue end of the spectrum and without that um you plants are just so different from people we get our energy from eating food when we put the so-called plant food or fertilizers on plants they get nothing from it in the absence of energy from the sun, it's just like we would get nothing from food if we didn't have a digestive system. But uh, you can you can have the best soil in the world, and without adequate sunlight, many plants, especially the ones that you were used to when you had your sunny yard, um, you know, they're just simply mm-hmm. not going to do. Now there are beautiful you know shrubs uh that can do very well they're beautiful you know ferns there are beautiful perennials that will grow well for you the palette is different and it is more limited but 
Uh, on the other hand, every year we see more and more, especially in new begonias, especially new varieties in the angel wing types or the dragon wings and now the baby dragon wings. And, you know, there are probably 40 different kinds of begonias that you could plant in mm-hmm. a wide range of colors. Impatience keep getting better and better. There are some new types out there that are much more resistant to the problems uh, where you have bright shade then you might consider some of the new periwinkles. There's some new very phytophthora-resistant periwinkles. There are incredible varieties of coleus out there these days. There's strobilanthus. There's uh, the hypoestus. There, it, it, there, there's a pretty good palette out there, but it's just totally different from the zinnias and marigolds and uh, you know purslane and portulaca and all the things that you've been used to growing. So. If you have any areas in your yard that get better sunlight, I'm all in favor of, of some new beds. I basically, I've moved a lot of my vegetable gardening closer to my house, my my garden. It's, you know, just literally a few hundred mm-hmm. feet away, but I fight the blasted raccoons and rock squirrels and everything else. And um, so I've created, I'll have to go out and figure sometime how many new square feet of basically red bed, uh, raised bed gardens around my new greenhouse and up closer to my home. So there's nothing wrong with uh, with starting some new beds and uh, you you know you're in an area yeah. where you at least have soil instead of rocks. You can either improve the soil you have. Oh, I do. Um, yeah, and, I have an acre and a half. And sure, you know there's lots of acres. well, okay. I, um, but up against the house, okay, mm-hmm. I can't I, um, do – should I put something like Medina soil activator underneath a lot of the new stuff? I'm going to go find some organic soil and, and try to put some new soil down and stuff like that. But it, would that help? Or, I mean, I know it'll help, but... Well, uh, no, it probably won't help you all that much because soil, okay. soil, mineral soil doesn't wear out. We wear it out by, you know, continually taking from it without putting enough and not putting right. all the but right things back. back. So uh-huh. I would, I, I mean, there's so many things you could add. If you want to go a little higher dollar and really high quality, find yourself a good source of earthworm castings. That is an incredible okay. thing to put in there. Uh, look for dry humate. There's a bunch of new research coming out on how humate interacts with mycorrhizal fungi and how the humate, the true humates do so many different things to build and improve the soil all the time you might consider adding some azomite which is a less commonly known mineral but uh great 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 cation exchange element which Mm -hmm. hangs on to all of your nutrients uh and by all means you know medina soil activator is great it's got to have some organic material to work with so i would use it in conjunction with molasses but soil doesn't wear out that soil where you're sitting in oklahoma that soil hadn't changed uh i'd have to you know go back to geology and say probably 20 million years your soil's been sitting there and <laughs> you didn't wear it out by gardening in it for 27 years. You've just taken yeah. away some of the nutrient material. And, you know, and what you need to do is sort of remineralize as well as put in the fertilizers, be it Medina or Maestro Grow or Nature's Creation or whatever you find in your area. 
you need to give them the big three, the nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, but you need to look at the, like I say, these micronutrients, these metallic elements, things like that. But uh, your soil is better than anything you can buy because most of the so-called, well, topsoils, organic soils, even Mm -hmm. organic soils, they're going to be high in carbonaceous material, which really hasn't broken down it hasn't decomposed to the point that it needs to get to and it's going to rob your soil of some of those nutrients as it goes through the breakdown Mm. process so i'm much much more in favor so long as your soil is not contaminated with pesticides which it's not no um, it's not then then i'm much more in favor of your your improving the soil you have i think that i might talk to an arborist not a hack quack and stack tree trimmer but i talked to somebody about perhaps doing some thinning perhaps doing some things that could get a more little more light down to ground level and um it's not a one-time yeah. thing when you prune trees properly you're going to actually increase the density of the shade three years from now because the trees are going to come back fuller and thicker than ever. But gardening is important to you, and it's worth yeah, spending it the money to make some adjustment You know, in the trees that you have, if nothing more than just properly thinning or lifting the canopies or doing things to get more sunlight down underneath. Mm-hmm. So I think there are a lot of things you can do, but... Um, would you move or take out? I have some. I, I found some of those beautiful crepe myrtles with, and I call it black leaves. They're mm-hmm. not black. Right, right. The dark leaves. Right. And of course, they didn't do well. I need to either take them out and just buy some new ones, or move. They. I thought they would really fight for the sun, but they. Nope. They are not doing good. No, no or, crepe. They're not doing well. Honestly. Yeah, no crepe myrtle is going to do well for you in the shade. That crepe myrtle okay. wants to be sitting okay. out in full bright in sun all day long. Um, you've got some folks up in Oklahoma, uh, Carl Whitcomb among others, yes. who are doing the best right. research. Yeah, best research in the world on crepe myrtles, but <laughs> they have yet to come up with a low light crepe myrtle. So, yeah, okay. you know, it's. Okay, so don't worry about new soil. Just keep working with what I have. And I'm, you know, I'm digging all the everything out except the hostas the hostas did beautifully oh yeah of course <laughs> but but i need some color and i'm i was just really frustrated last sure. year working trying to work with the zinnias and yeah no just, you're you're just trying to that that's like you know the same same problem we have that people want to grow you know acid soil plants and alkaline soils people want to grow you yeah. can't you can't grow bougainvilleas in oklahoma unless you're going to do in pots forget about it grow the maples that we can't grow down here grow so many of your oh everything from azaleas to rhododendrons to camellias to all sorts of things this have to be in the sun of course but you have an yeah. enormous palette that we do not have look at your flowering quince boy you can grow spirea oh like gosh. you wouldn't believe and barberries yeah. you've got a whole palette that we can't even think about here in south texas but you're just going to have to either increase your sun or change your plant selection to things that don't take as much sun there's nothing wrong with your gardening practices there's nothing wrong with your soil you just you're just living in a different home than you lived in 27 years ago and uh unless you want to give it up you're gonna have to get some new furniture for the yard so to speak and speaking (laughs) of you know 
yeah, yeah, look at look at hardscape. Look at maybe doing an outdoor kitchen. Look at doing a bocce ball court. Look at I don't know what your particular interests are, but uh, there may be things that you could do to that yard to help you enjoy the yard a heck of a lot more. And perhaps uh, because your palate may be a little bit more limited in the shade, so you reduce the you know the time you spend working in the garden and. You know, take up things that you enjoy. I mean, I love pitching horseshoes. I love playing croquet. There are a lot of yeah. things I enjoy doing in the fun. yard that I that I can't yeah. do in a flower bed. So uh, I think That's that, uh, you know, it, it's just kind of you may have to rearrange your priorities. You're very definitely going to have to rearrange your plant palette. But starting over with soil and things like that is not going to solve the problem for you. Okay. All right. Well, I... I thankful for that in a way okay (laughs) all right well thank you so much and have a great day you do appreciate all your help and a happy new decade to you thanks so much Haley. (laughs) thank you bye-bye bye all right next up is going to be sue and then greg and then james good morning sue good morning good morning if you drove from comforter kerrville last night that was one hellacious storm well where i was Uh, in bernie i was sitting there looking at a lot of lightning and um, i got i got some reasonably good rain but i saw a tornado warning for the candelia area and saw hail warnings for comfort so uh um, i'm glad i wasn't on the road up there yeah it was mostly pea-sized hail but it, it was about four times and just getting from, you know, the building to the car, I was walking in two <laughs> inches of water. So, wow. And then I thought, oh, that's great. I'm getting rain. Come to Bernie. There wasn't a drop. Yep. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, wait till next time. But we got a little bit. We but, did get some, yep. yeah. Okay, I have questions for you on avocados. Okay. Um, almost bought a couple at your place last year, but I was really torn about where to put them. I finally figured out a space I can more or less squeeze them in. Um Unfortunately, though, they're going under utility lines, mm-hmm. and that's kind of my pet peeve is to put a tree under a utility line. Well, they're not going to be big enough to cause any problems whatsoever. Now, if they decide to upgrade your service, they can, you know, drive their equipment over them and right. have no obligation to reimburse you in any way. But uh, an avocado is never going to get big enough that, the, that they're going to have to come along and trim it out of the wires. Good, you know, because I saw one, you know, I don't know which one it was Lila or Joey. One's more of a dwarf one, only gets 15 foot, and the other thing said 35 foot. And I also saw a video where they were just chopping them down like a big bush to eight feet. So would that be okay? If it, but you're saying it won't even get that big anyway. I would be amazed to see one. And and are you and Bernie, <laughs> where, where are you located, Sue? Uh, where, where one of your employees lives. Okay. Uh, um oh, in the <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm my mind's going blank at five in the morning <laughs> well okay so you're you're <laughs> leon springs area more or less yeah okay exactly. um I, I would be amazed to ever see an avocado get over 10 or 12 feet tall in your area wow, okay. i think eight I'm to ten is going to be that. more like it and if you want to turn it into a bush by all means do so be aware that you are on the northern limit of the cold hardiness of even the so-called cold hardy avocados and everybody you know doesn't remember we in the plant business remember severe weather especially severe winters and there have been there have been winters in the past uh where you were in single digits up in that area and you're going to cover them you're going to do a lot of things or they're going to die when it gets down below maybe 15 degrees or so so 
Um, you, you have to really want an avocado, kind of like you have to really want bougainvilleas <laughs> if you're going to plan on keeping the same plants around. So especially if you have a protected, somewhat protected area to plant them, go for it. It's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you can go out and easily on a not-too-fancy dinner, you can go out and spend $75, $100 without thinking about it with your family. And if you get five years of pleasure out of, uh, you know, for that price, you buy maybe three avocado trees or whatever. And if you get a few years pleasure and they freeze, then it's not the end of the world. But uh, uh, I sure wouldn't worry about size. You, I don't think there's okay. any way on earth you're any going to come anywhere close to power lines. So you put them in the sunny spot where you can. If it happens to have a little bit of protection from the north wind, all the better. Okay. So, uh, you know, I know they've said, you know, protect it for the first three years during the winter, but you're saying, no, you're, you're going to well, be protecting it all its life. Probably. Well, yes and no. The first two or three years, until it gets rough bark on it, I hate to put a time frame on it, but until it yeah. goes from that smooth bark to the rougher bark, even a light freeze will be very damaging to it. It's going to be damaged at, you know, 31 degrees this first two or three years until it, you know, develops a little more hardiness. After that, it's going to be cold hardy down into the teens. So, you know, nine years out of 10, you're probably going to have to do nothing other than water and feed. But you got to always have in the back of your mind what's going to happen that 10th year when we really get an Arctic blast. And um, just just know that it's out there. No, you're not going to have to continue to baby it the way you are for those first two or three years, but you're always going to have to be mindful of uh, the fact that we can get a lot colder than we typically do. We, we can have some weather extremes. Okay. And the other question I have for you, so this year I want to go ahead and put my sweet potatoes in the fabric pots like you've talked about before. Right. Um. It takes a lot of potting soil to do this. I have a pile of excuse me, of soil that I've pulled out of the uh, chicken area. Mm-hmm. It, it, and it also has chicken litter in it, but it doesn't smell at all. This is a dry area. What else can I put in there to lighten it up? I mean, it, essentially, it already has compost, but there is a lot of just soil from... I don't know that you really yeah. need to do anything to lighten it up. It sounds to me okay. like you got pretty darn good soil to start with. The thing that makes the soil more friable, so to speak, is the soil structure that's created uh, by the bacteria in the soil. They form something simply called sticky material or sticky stuff. It's like a polysaccharide material that spreads out the clay particles and kind of just you know, keeps things from getting dense and compacted. Um, so I, I, I'm not nearly as worried about your physically improving the soil. I'm sure you've got incredible microbial life from all the chicken <laughs> byproducts, shall we say, that are in there. So I'll bet you you're going to do well from year one with the soil pretty much really? as it is. And have you ever had your sweet potatoes? You know, uh, I tried one this year but it was more in like leaf litter and it didn't mm-hmm. go that well um and the soil shrank down too right Did you ever have yours turn green and is that bad to eat like a regular white potato well or? they only turn green in the presence of sunlight when right. the if the potato is up on the surface and yes that is that really reduces the um palatability of them and some people okay. will say you even should never eat something like that but you know, I just, mm, I've got my shovel there, and if I have potatoes that are showing on the surface, and I do this for white potatoes as well as sweet potatoes, I just put a shovel full of dirt over the top of it. 
You, yeah, you can't have green chlorophyll without sunlight. Sunlight, well, you've picked up a board, you picked up a pot, you picked up stuff and seen all that white grass underneath it. Uh, that The green compound starts out of something we call prochlorophyll A, which is colorless, and it doesn't form its colored form until it uh, has sunlight hit it. So uh, not a big issue and easy to take care of. Okay, very good. All right. Well, that's all I got this morning. I well, appreciate it. Well, you get out and enjoy a beautiful weekend. Will do. All Thank right. you. Thank you, Sue. <laughs> Bye. Okay, next up is Greg. Good morning, Greg. Good morning, Bob. How are you doing? I'm well, sir. How about you this morning? Very well, thank you. Good. Great way to start the day. (laughs) Yes. I love getting up early and getting things started. Even when you got kept up a little bit later with thunder and things last night, which was most unusual, but most welcome. (laughs) Yeah, it was uh, quite a light show last night. Yeah, it was. Certainly was. Well, I had a couple questions about pruning, and I know that may be a little bit earlier on, but my uh, my daughter bought a house, um, I guess it's September last year. Very anyway, good. and uh, a couple of the trees that she had in the back were really overgrown. One of them was a pomegranate tree. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, now all the leaves are off of it. It, um, it. it has been left alone and not taken care of at all. It. I guess the best description, it almost looks like Cousin It in a windstorm. <laughs> the way it's just gonna, I've it's got just one of crazy. those. Yeah, I've got one of those. And, uh, and in fact, there was a, we're not sure if it's a lemon or a lime tree that was buried underneath it. That It's still, it's hanging on pretty good. But anyway, so as far as pruning, um, what would be, uh, what would be the right time of year to prune on that? And is there anything in particular because of the way there are some of the, uh, I guess, would be the uh, original uh, mm-hmm. trunks, part of the trunk and stock yeah. that are going up straight and the rest of it's pulling off to one side. Well, and, yeah, pomegranates grow basically as a big out of control bush. And you the what I would recommend is, first of all, thin it out substantially. That pomegranate may be growing probably with eight or ten or twelve different trunks coming up. And yes. you you need to, I mean, if space is a consideration, take out some of the ones that are growing too much outward. Uh, if anything okay. is really tall, you don't want to get a stepladder in there to have to try to pick the fruit. So I would, you know, it's kind of like oleanders. I, periodically, I'm going to go through and take out the big old woody trunks that are going to be less healthy and less productive. And I'm going to encourage the, you know, the newer growth coming out now. And this obviously is probably not a not a grafted pomegranate, and if it is, the grafted portions probably you know died out. This is probably just a wonderful pomegranate, which produces uh, was a standard of the industry for virtually all the edible pomegranates around. So, and this is a fine time of year to do that. So, I'm going to tell okay. you start by taking out big old major, perhaps unhealthy trunks. Start by cutting out anything that's in the way, and then stand back and take a look and see if you need to do any more. Pomegranates are Summer blooming, uh, which means you're not really going to impact production by by doing your pruning now. Okay. Um, in regards to the cuts, I know with oaks, it's real important. No, don't to, even uh, think about pruning. Oak. Don't even think about pruning paint or anything like that. Okay. So uh, there was one other tree that she had over there as well, um, overgrown that they hadn't taken care of, and it's a fig tree. From okay. So I, I guess the, the same question to that. Is there anything? And it, I did notice that it did not seem to produce much fruit. Is it out in good sunlight? 
Yes, sir. Okay. Then uh, the two things figs need are water and sun, and they need a lot of both of those. Fig trees, as uh, she has certainly discovered, can become quite large. Now, depending on the type of figs, uh, you know, many of the of the figs that it will produce will be on the older wood and pruning severely it will reduce the fig crop your so-called ever-bearing figs will also produce uh, figs on new wood so it's not like she's going to be giving up everything now i am gonna on my fig trees i'm probably going to wait until the middle of february to prune normally Normally, once things have gone dormant for the winter, or at least semi-dormant, then we can prune just about any time. But figs are a tropical plant. Pruning them with the first warm weather is going to make them want to come out and put on new growth. And our weather's been so crazy so far this winter that things are starting to sprout and grow that really should not be coming out and they're going to get hurt if we have a hard freeze in january or february and remember we've had freezes as late as april so don't be in a rush to prune on the figs pomegranates are not as tropical they're not as likely to start trying to put on new growth just because they've been pruned but figs certainly could be so i'm going to put off my fig tree pruning until probably mid-february or so and then it's just a matter of getting it back under control a matter of shaping it Uh, again figs tend to have a lot of dead wood in them they grow quickly they're constant replacing old wood with new wood so the pruning is going to be to take out well basically anything that's in the way and once again if there's any older weaker growth that's what i would take out before i take out the newer fresher growth and encourage her to put a good layer of mulch over the entire root zone of the fig and plan on giving it regular watering and uh you guys should be eating fig preserves (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> as much as you like i hope you have i hope you like figs because uh, uh you certainly have the potential to produce a lot of them a little bit of nutrient bunch of water mulch i think uh, that fig will probably produce heavily for you this year oh outstanding thank you so much for your time you have you, a wonderful weekend well you do the same uh you are here in the san antonio area yes sir okay um i We're don't fine. have the don't have the date in front of me but i think it is either Maybe it's the third Saturday in February. Uh, I will be doing a, a free pruning seminar, and if y'all want to come over, we do them at 945 over at Shades of Green, and uh, it's a whole lot easier okay. to show you with plants and with a blackboard all the different things and teach you a little bit of the kind of the theory and the physiology behind pruning. So uh, um, I'll, I'll by next week or, or some maybe even by tomorrow, I'll get those dates uh in front of me so i can tell you exactly when but uh pruning is something okay. that's uh, going to be a major part of enjoying that new home so love to have you come uh let me teach you what i can about it i would love to do that thank you so much she is my pleasure thank you greg we'll talk again uh-huh. bye all right uh james is the only person i've got holding so uh grab one of those open lines if you like while i punch line number four and say good morning james hey good morning bob how are you today i'm doing very well thank you how about yourself Oh, I'm doing great. Just got a little bit of rain last night. No hail. Southeast, uh, let's say Foster Road in 10, San Antonio. Very good. Yeah, it hit a little later than it did the hill country, but, uh, um, you know, every drop of rain is welcome. Do you have any idea how much rain you ended up getting? Uh, No, sir. Less than half an inch. Yeah. Well, we'll take every drop. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, 
my question, uh, I'm going to move you from plants just a little bit. A couple of weeks ago, you were talking about your nice decomposed granite parking lot driveway right. and all that good stuff out right. there. Well, my parents have an old asphalt uh, parking area that is, oh, the asphalt is, it's concrete curb line, but the asphalt is pretty much gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, of course, the, uh, and of course, some plants and stuff going through it. So we wanted to put down the same type stuff as y'all did. Did y'all have to use a binder or anything? No. No, I don't Just feel like in most decomposed. Great. Yeah, it. Um, if we're on a steep slope, I think a binder would probably be a good idea, or perhaps necessary. Um, the chances are, how how long has this asphalt been in there? Yeah, too long. Thirty years at least. Okay, and um, <laughs> you probably don't remember, but. Hopefully, um, you know, when they put the asphalt in, they put some base material underneath and packed it and then just put the asphalt on top of it. Now, is this an area they, they, is it a driveway that's used daily? Is it where they park a boat or an RV or what, what is this area used for? Well, this is, uh, this is an old neighborhood off of Fair Avenue and this, this driveway just happens to be about, uh, it's really parking and it's, Pretty much, it's just their vehicle. Okay. Uh, Dad's getting up there a little and doesn't like tripping, but it's probably 40 feet with a couple. It, it's probably room for six cars. That's my problem. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, here's here's the thing. Um, you know, for and our parking lot has everything from semis driving on it to a lot of cars every day. So I did put down in some areas as much as three feet because, well, let's just say leveling that parking lot, making it drain well was quite a challenge. But uh, I put down good road base and compacted it uh, very well before we put the decayed granite on top of it. For occasional use, um, and and you almost certainly have some decayed granite underneath, I'm sorry, you have some uh, packed base underneath that asphalt. So I doubt that you need to do anything more than just put your decayed granite on top of it. Uh, and then if you can compact it some, all the better. But uh, I would never, if you have real deep soil, I, you, you couldn't put an inch of decayed granite on top of it and expect it to hold up. You Heavier vehicles would sink into it and all. So um, I, I would never create a parking lot with 12 inches of decayed granite. That's never going to set up hard. Our parking lot uh, put packed base underneath and then actually put about an inch, inch and a half of decayed granite on top of it. And what's that been, 12 or 14 years now? And it functions extremely well. It's so much cooler than asphalt. It's just, I think, an ideal parking surface. But um, And it sounds like this would be a real good good substitute, something good to replace that asphalt with. But if you start pulling the asphalt up and see that it's nothing but black clay underneath it, you may want to scoop out a little bit more of that, uh, put in a you know, four, six inches of base, pack that down, and then put your decay granite on top of that. Does that make sense? That sure does. Um, now my new problem is I'll be moving to Lubbock soon, and none of my fruit trees are going to work up there, so I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> well, I would say none of your fruit trees. You can grow good pears up there. Um, you can grow good peaches. They're certainly not going to be the varieties that you're used to here. But um, actually, you you will have you can grow more apples up there. You can grow a lot of things that you can't grow here. So kind of like my first caller this morning, uh, you're just going to have to change your plant palette a little bit. And figs aren't going to do for you nearly as well up there as they do here. 
but um, there there are solutions to all these problems. If you say, oh, my gosh, I'm just going to miss my figs so badly. Well, there's a, some new dwarf varieties out there. My favorite is one called Little Miss Figgy. And uh, you could grow that in a in you know a a fabric pot or something like that that you could slide inside when uh, that north wind slides across the, the the Texas Tech's campus. There's just nothing to slow down those cold fronts up there. So it, it's going to be a a relearning process. But as Howard Garrett always says, the nice thing about organics is the basic organic principles are the same no matter where you are. It's just the plant palette that has to change a little bit. So. I'm afraid James is going to have to learn a little bit about some different plants. But uh, on the other hand, I tell you one thing about that area is that that soil is great. Just add water and things grow. I lived for, oh gosh, five years of my junior high and early, well, let's see, it was late grade school and junior high years in Albuquerque. And everybody thinks of it as a desert where nothing grows. You put water on it, everything grows. So, uh, uh, you're going to do extremely well with your gardening up there. It's just going to be a little different schedule, a little bit different plant palette. So uh, <laughs> nothing wrong with uh, with relearning a few things. That's right. Well, thank you. I appreciate your help. Well, it's always a pleasure. And um, like I say, we'll love to instruct and help any way we possibly can. And uh, you call me anytime. All right. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, you James. Uh, you too. Bye. All right, back to gardening. It's going to be Kathy and John and Reed. One line left. Grab it if you like. Good morning, Kathy. Good morning, Bob. I'm so happy to talk to you this morning. Uh, it's my pleasure. How can I help? Well, uh, we have some close friends that just moved down to Rio Grande City area. Okay. And they're doing some landscaping. And the soil is like, I think it must be a lot of clay in there. They said they used to grow watermelons on that right. area where their house is. So they planted some fruit trees, but I'm thinking maybe uh, everything they plant, they should maybe put in a raised bed. I don't know. I'm wondering what kind of drainage, you know, the soil has, if it's going to, you know, if they're going to thrive. Well, you know, that area, unfortunately, started out with very high levels of organic material, grew incredibly good Everything from uh, watermelons to cantaloupes to grapefruit, uh, you name it. And with the good old synthetic fertilizers that they dumped on it for the past 80 years, um, yeah, about 80 years, uh, they have basically fried all the organic material out of the soil, and it leads to this crusting, it leads to the compaction. Um I don't know that it's necessary to, you know, go to the trouble of putting in raised beds, but I very definitely would start working on that soil immediately, applying things like molasses, applying things like uh, Medina's uh, soil activator, uh, compost uh, in the areas where they want to garden. I just, I, I don't know that you can bring in a whole lot better soil. And, you know, like an earlier caller this morning, the, the soil is not bad. It's just they've taken most of the organic material out of it. So you need to, in effect, bring that soil back to life. You need to, you know, soften it up. And you do that with organic gardening practices. And like I say, with things like molasses, which are really going to kick up the microbial activity. And, you know, if, uh, if possible... A, some good compost. I mean, even just putting compost on the surface 
and leaving it alone, it will soften the soil underneath it. If you want to put bigger amounts on the surface and actually blend it into the soil, at this point, it, that's that's going to be just fine. I would not recommend it once your soil is really in good shape because you mess up you know, some of the uh, good beneficial fungi and you start exposing more of your organic material to the surface where it can oxidize and go away. But right now you're, you're just starting with crappy soil that has almost no organic material in it. So my first thought would be, um, you know, improve what you have because long-term you can bring it back to what it was, uh, you know, before World War II when we started getting all these synthetic nitrogen fertilizers, which has been the downfall, in my opinion, of agricultural soils all the way across the country. So uh, look at the bright side of things. They're down there in a wonderful warm climate where they can do things with bougainvilleas and hibiscus and ixoras and uh, citrus trees that we can only dream of doing in San Antonio and the Hill Country. So uh, it's it's yeah. going to be a change. It's going to be a learning experience. But uh, that soil is going to take some work. But I think I think they can do a pretty good job of revitalizing what they have. All right. Well, that sounds doable. So I know because we do all of that here. Yes. In Antonio. So. Well, well you great. just do the same thing there. And um, again, that was wonderful soil. And, uh, you know, at one point, Texas uh, Rio Grande Valley grew some of the most nutritious food in the world. Uh, sadly, if you look at the nutritional content as well as the sugar, the, what they call the bricks, it has gone down, down, down. The soil quality has gone down. But we haven't changed the basic nature of the soil. We just need to build it back up with the appropriate things. And uh, um, it'll be good the first year. It'll be fantastic the 10th year. All right. Well, great. Any, anything you can recommend as far as um, products down there? Uh, I don't know how how easy it they they would be to find. But. I think you'll I think you'll find that um, you know things like the Medina products are certainly available down there. Mm-hmm. You're going to find there's enough cattle industry uh, in the valley that uh, you can certainly find agricultural molasses down there, which is going to be one of the principal things they're going to use on that soil. And uh, they can come see their friend Kathy up in this area and get anything they can't find down there periodically. That's true. <laughs> they they also have a have a great resource in a soil lab down there uh, that's called. Um, uh, oh, hang on, just one second. Uh, Texas Plant and Soil Labs (TPSL) had to get the acronym out there. Texas Plant and Soils Labs is actually in Edinburgh. Now, okay. there some of the recommendations aren't quite as organic as I would like, but if they want a basic you know, analysis of what they have, a good starting point. Um, the fellow's name, the lab manager's name is Noe Garcia, and they are the only soils lab I recommend in Texas for, you know, getting a true evaluation, not just of what's in the soil, but what's available to the plants that's in the soil. So um, they might want to get in contact with them, maybe send them a soil sample or two, and they'll tell them how to do it. You know, mistakes that people make, they want to take the soil sample right on the surface. You don't do that. You go down five or six inches because that's where your plant's roots are going to be. And uh, I would totally trust the results that uh, Noe will send you on uh, on what the soil and what's in it. going to be far better than any other soil testing lab in Texas. But uh, talk to me before you follow up, because like I say, I, 
they're not 100% organic in what they recommend. I'm pretty darn close to 100%. So let's talk about what they recommend to remediate their soil. But these guys have been working with uh, Valley Soils for many, many years, and uh, just just a great resource. I, I have tremendous respect for Noah and his staff and uh, the way that they do their soil testing and a lot of other good services they provide down there. All right. Well, that sounds great. Um well, we're sold on organic, that's for sure, after listening to you. <laughs> well, it definitely works, and it will work very well down there. It's just going to be a little transition to get that soil back in good shape from uh, everything that was taken away from it from 40 years watermelon farming. I see. Well, that's wonderful. I'm going to pass all this on to them, and I sure appreciate all the good advice. Well, you call me anytime, and have them call me anytime. I sure will. Thanks, Bob. You're welcome, Kathy. Thank you. All right, next up is John. Good morning, John. Good morning, sir. How you doing? Oh, you know, just uh, at least we got some rain out of the deal, and it's a beautiful, cool morning out there. It looks like a gorgeous weekend. I, I'd say I'm doing pretty well. Looking forward to the weekend. I hope you didn't have any down fences, because that's what I had to chase the last two hours. Oh, wow. Trees going down? Yes, sir. Oh, Luckily, my gosh. They were just the cedar trees, so. Well, that's one of my one of my warm weather projects is uh, trying to you know simply cut the cedar far enough back away from my fences that when that sort of stuff happens. But boy, been there, done that. So uh, <laughs> at least you're going to have a, a nice day to get out there and do it. Have any idea how much rain you ended up with? No, it, I my um, that's one of the things the gauge went down. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Well, my my business partner, as you know, lives not too far from me, and she was texting me a couple of times in the evening saying, man, the wind's blowing here. Wow, the wind's blowing here. And uh, I'm sorry to hear that you uh, had the misfortune of, uh, of of having fences down, but, you know, welcome to welcome to life in the hill country. It's still better than living well, yeah. in the city. Well, I've been years of this, so I understand. Now, uh, last couple weeks ago, you were talking to a gentleman about uh, LED lights. Right. For growing. Uh, I did. This is a, a past experience that I'm not too proud of, but I did pest control for about three or four years. Okay. And of course, it, w- it wasn't organic. It was all the bad stuff. Right. But uh, one of the things towards the end of it, uh, LED lights were sh- just showing on the on the onto the scene. Right. And a lot of my customers were complaining about bugs outside, like like I have between my garage and the house. You have a a walkway, mm-hmm. and all the bugs just because the lights are on. I said, "Well, change to LED." Right. And sure enough, the bugs don't show up. Very few. You get a few. Right. But we, uh, I did some digging. And what it is is the, the light in a LED is closer to the blue spectrum. Right. White blue. More yep. of a white blue. Away from so the yellow and very, red. Right. There's very very little yellow, very little red. So the bugs are not attracted to it. That's a uh, real interesting point. Yeah. And what I've gone completely on the outside and mostly on the inside LED. Heck, we don't even have the, the, the scorpion problem we did before. Oh, that's interesting. Because, because yeah. there's no, well, the scorpions, like anything else, they go for heat. Mm-hmm. They go, and they go because they can't see. Uh, vibration, and then uh, the temp, you know, uh, what is it? It's heat, light, and oh, humidity. Right. And if those three things are right, then they're going to look. And if, <laughs> Right. That's it, and and of course they don't, the only thing they think about is propagation and eating. So that they, everything has to be perfect for them. Well, and the other bugs that way. The other thing that's good about LEDs, and I've got to verify 
this, but I, you know, in the case of fluorescent light, which is what most people use for plant lights, the spectral output breaks down, and the first part of the spectrum to go is that blue end of the spectrum, which your plants use, and I don't think there's any spectral degradation at all in LEDs so far as I can tell. I was talking to my electrician friends in Bernie up there, and, uh, you know, just what is available out there in LED fixtures and all is just right. absolutely amazing. Now, the only creature that I think will be unhappy about that are going to be the bats because, you know, my old uh, sodium vapor uh, light, I always, I had quite a quite a population of bats out there going after all the bugs that were circling around my outdoor security light. And uh, now that uh, Bandera Electric put one of the newer bulbs in, we're going to see how it works this summer from the bat's perspective. Uh, that's that's. There are a few creatures out there that loved having the insects congregating around the light, but for the most part, it's uh, it's a very good change. And when you look at the energy savings, when you look in the at the uh, lack of light pollution with the newer fixtures, it's a very very positive change for the environment. It is. I mean, and most people don't. They think of the when they say blue light, they think of the bug lights that we used to get and put out on the fence posts. Right. Well, that, that is actually filtering out the blue and giving them red, so it's attracting bugs. <laughs> you people got it. Are, people don't think of it that way. Oh, it's a blue light. No, it is actually red. It's giving them infrared light, not sure. blue light. Sure. And it might be good for hunting hogs, but it's uh, not real good for some other things. No, not good at all. Um, but uh, I just wanted to pass on that piece of information. And uh, like I said, I, I'm still LED is still a young uh, industry and it's it's getting better and better. Um, it's only going to be uh, time before we're we're going to be um, probably incandescent and fluorescent free. Yeah, and it's you know like everything else. There, yeah, I think there is still a place for incandescent. I mean, look at what happened up north when they started going to LEDs and all their traffic yeah. lights, and they had no, the heat no longer melted the snow and ice off, and they ended right. up with lots and lots of bad accidents. So I, uh, I I don't think, hopefully, we'll never see them totally go away, but right. as far as the majority of our lighting, you know, materials that we use, boy, more power to it. Uh, you look at the you look at the lower energy consumption. You look at the at the life of the bulbs, and uh, you just look at the light. I've got uh, LED lights in my greenhouse, and it's just it's amazing. <laughs> my business partner, who's quite a photographer, was just amazed at some of the pictures that I've taken in there with no natural right. light whatsoever. Some of the orchids as they've come into bloom. So I appreciate you sharing your knowledge and experience with us, and I hope you'll do so as you learn more. I shall. Thank you, sir. You're sure welcome, John. Thank you, sir. Goodbye. All right. Back to the phone lines. We're going to talk to Reed, and then we're going to talk to a fellow with a very good name, somebody named Bob, and a couple of lines open. Grab one if you like. Good morning, Reed. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Thank you for all you do. I sure appreciate it. You're you're the soundtrack of Saturday morning. <laughs> you're very kind. I certainly enjoy it and uh, enjoy helping any and every way I can. Bob, I got kind of carried away. I've got a bunch of peach trees and a few pecan trees, and I've been using the Medina fertilizer, and uh, I'm uh, spending quite a bit of money on it. I just wondered if you had any good strategies on, you know, how much and what time of year to be putting it down and and all of that to 
kind of help save the little money on that? Well, first of all, um, do you have the equipment to handle heavy stuff? Do you have a tractor or a bobcat or a forklift or anything like that? Well, no, I just, no, I do not. I have about 20 peach trees and four or five pecan trees, and so okay. I've been okay. doing them by hand. Well, what I was going to tell you is uh, Medina will happily sell you uh, that grape fertilizer in a 1,000-pound tote or 2,000-pound tote, and you'll save a lot of money because bagging is an expensive process. But I don't know that, um, you know, that, that may not be practical with what you're doing now. As far as fertilizing, you know, there there are a lot of things you can do to make your fertilizer work better uh, which include, of course, things like mulching, um, and as far as timing, the most important time to put your fertilizer on is going to be in the fall. I think October, November, uh, even as late as right now, is is okay, but your fall fertilizing is what prepares your trees for their spring growth, uh, blooming, producing nuts and fruit. So uh, fall feeding is the one very important time. Uh, if it's in the budget to do a second time, I would make it uh, very early spring, about February, because that's what's going to carry your plants into their growth stage, which is what's really going to occur in March, April, and May. So my second fertilizing would be in February. If it works, you know, monetarily and uh, it takes time to put out fertilizer, then I think a third summertime application is always, uh, you know, a very good good thing and the nice thing about organic products like medina's growing green is they don't go away they don't leach through the soil the way chemical fertilizers do and they stay bound in the soil until the plants you know are ready to use them now your trees uh if you can add a little bit of something like lava sand around if you can keep them well mulched it's going to make your fertilizer work even better but um uh, you know, it, it, the the next big jump will be when you can simply buy your fertilizer as far as, as price savings, when you can buy your fertilizer in one big thousand pound bag instead of getting, you know, that's the equivalent of 50 of your standard 40 pound bags. So if you have a dry place to store it and a way to unload that tote off of your truck and into your barn or whatever, that's where your big monetary savings are going to come, you know, in the long run. But uh, every, everything you do, you know, just maintaining the mulch, maintaining everything else uh, organically, applying molasses periodically just to kick up your microbial activity, all those are, in effect, going to make your fertilizer more efficient. And I, if once you get your soil in good enough shape, you're going to cut your fertilizing back to once or twice a year at most. But initially, you're just making an investment in, you know, in getting your soil in good shape and getting your trees in good shape. Oh, that sounds good. Um, I might I'll look into the price of that tote. Um, And I've been going by, you know, they give you a certain amount of fertilizer based on the inch of diameter of the tree. Is that the the best way to do it? That's probably that's probably the best way to do it. But go by Medina's recommendations, not the ag agents. Because um, the other mistake, in my opinion, that a lot of chemical ag or maybe i'll say traditional agriculture they want to talk about pounds of nitrogen 
uh, in your fertilizer, and to me that is totally misleading. It's not how much nitrogen is in the fertilizer. It's how much is going to stay and be available to your plants and how much your plants are going to be able to use because a lot of naysayers out there still say, oh, well, that fertilizer only got 4% nitrogen, and I'd rather use a 20% nitrogen fertilizer where I get five times as much. Well, the problem is that 20% nitrogen fertilizer is water-soluble. It's in an anionic state, which means there's nothing to bind it to the soil. And the truth is that with a 4% organic fertilizer, and sometimes you'll, you'll go even a little higher than that, but a 4% organic fertilizer, your plants are going to get all 4% of that nitrogen, all 4 pounds per 100 of nitrogen. Your trees are going to get 100% of it. That 2100, for instance, you're lucky if the trees get 10% of it. So even though the numbers are much higher, even though the pounds of nitrogen you put on, you know, sounds like you're doing great things, your trees probably only going to get 10% of it. So even though the number's much higher, the trees are going to get half as much net results. So um, if you're going by Medina's recommendation on fertilizer, then uh, I would certainly go with that in terms of pounds per inch of trunk diameter. Uh, but if you're going by the, you know, what the the traditional ag go, guys go by is how many pounds of nitrogen you're putting out, you're way, way off base because your Medina fertilizer or any other good organic fertilizer is going to be far more efficient than your 181818 or 2100 or the, the, the standard chemically or i should say synthetically produced fertilizers does that make sense yes sir okay well and then the last thing i i've been using just a push spreader does that go all the way around the you know the whole drip line of the tree or is it just a circle or close to the trunk um, you know, your your feeding roots are going to extend at least 50% beyond the drip line. So, um, it's, yeah, it you're going to go beyond just the immediate area around the trunk. But here's the thing about healthy soils, about healthy mycorrhizal fungi and things like that, is wherever the fertilizer is, it's good. They're going to pick it up and transport it to the tree roots. So, uh, in a healthy soil, if your fertilizer is not as evenly distributed, the trees are still going to get the full benefit of it. But um, maybe one of the next things that you ought to think about investing in, um, do you have any kind of ATV or gator or, you know, a Polaris or anything like that that you use on your property? No, I've got a big mower that I could... Well, they make a uh, a a spreader that holds about oh gosh, what does mine hold? Maybe uh, five bags of fertilizer, about two hundred and fifty pounds, and that sure does make it go faster. Um, and it's something that I just pull behind my gator. It does not require a PTO. It doesn't have to have power takeoff on a tractor or anything like that. But okay. at some yeah, point, yeah. You, you might look into that, or you might even find a used one somewhere around at one of these equipment dealers, and that will speed up. Uh, the process, but it doesn't have to be, you know, super evenly distributed. I I don't, you know, in my garden where I've got fruit trees and things like that, I'm just going in there with a bucket and just slinging it out. I'm not going to the trouble of trying to, you know, put it in a spreader and push it around because then I'm bouncing up and down over my drip lines and the unevenness of the soil. So however you can spread it, do it quick and dirty. This is not uh, not something that has to be precise. Okay. All right. 
Well, thank you for all the information. I sure appreciate it. Do one other thing for me, Reed, and that is check the base of those trees and be absolutely certain you've got the root flares exposed on them because long-term, that's going to give you the healthiest, longest-live, most productive trees, and I think that's the single biggest problem that I see, especially, well, I can't even say small orchards in small or large orchards, this business of having the trees buried way too deeply and people used to say oh yeah you want to bury them up to the graph point and all you absolutely do not you want to see those major roots flaring out from the base you'll be amazed in the difference it makes in production and in healthier trees all right right very good keep me posted on how you do i want to hear about uh about big harvest come about uh may or june or so well, I'm 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 kind of nervous about our chilling hours. I don't know if I've had enough yet. You know, surprisingly, we're we're pretty much on track with chilling hours. We haven't had severe cold, but we've had a pretty fair amount of weather below 45 degrees. So, uh, if January and February turn out to be anything like typical, so long as you've selected uh, the appropriate chilling hours, I think you're going to be fine. This winter's been, from the trees' perspective. Uh, it's been pretty good because we've spent a lot of time under 45. So, so far, so good. All right. Well, I'll share one more thing if you got a second. Yes, sir. Um, I know you you don't, you haven't recommended doing the dormant oil every year, but I I ordered some bare root trees, and I think one of them, it came in with some of that scale, and uh, mm. it was it was pretty devastating. It, it I lost that little tree after even after I identified it and, and killed the scale the yep. tree still withered up and passed away so anyway I've been putting the dormant oil on every year since then well just do it as needed you know I go around and examine my trees every year and I I put it on where I need it uh once a tree's established you're it, it'd take five years before scale for scale to kill a tree young tree that tree probably had some problems before it ever came to you it's just a problem with dormant oil you're wiping out a lot of your beneficial insects that do a lot of good things for you and uh, i still use dormant oil but i probably only have to use it once every three or four years and usually it's on trees that are stressed for some other reason where i let the root flare you know get buried dormant oil is not not bad stuff it's just don't use it unless you really need it because it does some harm as well as some good okay all right well, maybe I'll use it on the smaller ones. Well, just just look at them real carefully because uh, a fruit tree scale takes a takes several years to really get bad enough for it to severely impact at least two or three years. So it's not something that's gonna that's gonna kill your tree in one season. Uh, you got something else going on, weaker tree, something wrong with the roots uh, before you even started out. But just you know, walk through. Uh, you know, pick a. Pick a nice day and just walk through and look carefully at every tree. Look at them when you're doing your pruning. That's when I study my trees the most. And you'll pick up immediately if you've got any scale issues. And in that case, get the dormant oil out immediately. Right, right. Okay. I appreciate the call. You have a great day. And uh, keep your fingers crossed for that next good rain. All right. Let's get right on straight back to these phone lines. Bob is up first. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Morning, sir. I have a question. I'm, we are thinking about getting some olive trees. Okay. But we have to put them in our fenced-in backyard because of the deer population. Yes, sir. What If some of these olives fall on the ground, what are the odds of my dogs getting sick from eating them or 
would that be a good idea? Um, what kind of dogs my, do you have? My dogs eat everything. I have I have beagles. Okay, I was raised by a beagle, so uh, I I love love beagles. My my current I have more labs than uh, anything else in recent years. But um, you would not wanting them eating a huge amount of things, but a few of them really aren't going to be that much of a problem. Uh, where are you located? North San Antonio, South San Antonio, whereabouts? Uh, we're out by Alamo Cement. Okay. Um, yeah, you, you should do pretty well with olives in that area. I don't think, you know, unless you're planning to turn your entire property into an olive grove, you're never going to collect just a, a huge, huge number of olives. And um, uh, a beagle's big enough that, you know, if we're something like pecans, you know, doing the show with Dr. Kirby, I've learned so much about problems with dogs getting blocked up with things they eat and, and all. And I don't think that's going to be a case. It probably would uh, have the potential to cause a few digestive issues, just like people can't eat raw olives without getting an upset tummy. Uh, dogs probably can't either, but it at worst you get a, a little bit of nausea. You don't get the life-threatening consequences you get with uh, cocoa or, you know, uh, sago palms or some of the really bad stuff out there. So I wouldn't um, I wouldn't let it stop me from uh, from planting some olive trees if you'd enjoy having some olive trees. I, I don't think the dogs are going to suffer any great consequences from it, and most of the olives are going to fall straight down. Worst-case scenario, you might put a little low fence uh, or even a temporary electric fence up during olive season just to keep the dogs away from the trees. But uh, I, I sure wouldn't let that stop me from uh, planting and enjoying olives. Okay. Sounds good. Very good. Uh, All right. And, and, you know, choose carefully the most commonly grown, probably most productive olive is Arvacania. But if you're planting several trees, you might consider some mission. You might talk to Sandy uh, Winokur down at Sandy Oaks Olive Orchard for her suggestions because she's planted thousands of trees and just a wonderful resource. Okay. What are we planning on going to? Uh, Excellent. Excellent. Bob, okay. I appreciate the call. Good luck with it. Well, don't dial right this second because, as I warned you, all those lines are taken. We'll have one available shortly, though. We're going to talk to Sylvia and Adam and then Dan and then James. So let's just get started. Good morning, Sylvia. Hi, Bob. Hi there. Um, hi. Um, I'm going to get a double knockout rose, you know, from you know, the shades of green um, okay. probably today or tomorrow. Um, do I plant it like a, a regular rose? Or do Absolutely. I have to do any anything special? No. The only difference, in my opinion, in knockout roses is that my experience shows me they take more water than most of the other own root roses and things. I find that uh, I don't grow as many knockouts anymore because I was having to water them two or three times as often as I was oh. so many of my old-fashioned varieties. But soil preparation, mm -hmm. planting, giving them full sun um, is exactly the same as it is for any other rose bush. Okay. Because I have two areas. One area is has a lot of sun, but another area is kind of sun in the you know, the afternoon, it's, would that be all right? Because I might, I might get too, I'm not too sure. If it gets sun all afternoon, that should be fine. 
Um, okay. If it gets some for just a couple of hours, uh, the plant's going to grow. It's just not going to have as many flowers. And the reason the reason we grow roses, with a few exceptions of the ones that produce the hips that we get vitamin C from, we grow the roses for the flowers. And there's no question that the knockouts are among the most spectacular roses that have ever been produced. But uh, just be prepared to water a little bit more often than you will uh, many of your other roses. But, yeah, I... So- you know, like every other day or every two days? Once they're established, probably once a week. When you first once plant them, it'll be every couple of days. Just feel the soil and see. But once they're established, once a week will be enough. But a lot of my other roses in my landscape, they get by on once a month. So um, it, it's just a little more water. And, right, a little bit more. Yeah, and as, yeah, as, I've never gotten a knockout rose. I usually get you know, your regular roses, but sure. I said, well... Uh, I think it's your partner, Pat. You said they just came in, so I'm going to come by and try today or tomorrow. Well, it's, it's it, yeah. Pat is Pat is one of our ladies that's worked with us. My partner is Roberta, but we've got we've got oh, some beautiful cool. ones. The I love the red knockouts and the pink knockouts, uh, whether they're double or single, either one. I'm not crazy about the white one or the yellow one. They don't seem to hold their colors as well, but the red and the pink are they absolutely don't. beautiful. So. Uh, um, but love to see. In the shop, or is that a double double knockout? Because I think that's what you told me is a double knockout. We have both. We have both. both. I'd oh. have to look and see, and uh, they're really very similar unless you get up very close to the rose. It's just the double one has more petals. It's not gonna. Yeah, pro- the, yeah the, that's why I was thinking of getting that one because it's more, and the other one, you know how the flower falls. You know, especially mm-hmm. if you get a lot of wind. You know. Well, I'll tell you, from 10 feet away, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. But you should get what you want. But up close, it is a little bit fuller flower. But you get 10, 15 feet away. They're They're all pretty much the same structure as far as how they grow. And um, okay. if they're they're not going to get droopy, in effect, if if there was ever a problem with the blooms not standing up totally erect, it would be more likely a problem with the double because the more petals it has, you know, the more weight there is to the individual flower. So you get what oh. is most pleasing to Sylvia. Don't worry too much about whether it's a regular or whether it's a double knockout because, uh, like oh, I say, unless okay, you just got your, your nose right up into it, you're really not going to notice much difference when they start blooming. Okay. Uh, and the pearl, um, they said they were going to give away trees. I saw it on Channel 5, but they didn't say when. This weekend, next weekend. Have you heard anything about that That tree? That, you know, with I haven't heard about that. They're almost certainly doing it in oh. conjunction with saws. I suspect if you call oh. saws, they'd be able to give you the full full information. Because I check on the website, Pearl, there's not anything just thinks about exercising, the farmer market, but <laughs> not anything. Maybe, yeah. maybe it's going to be until next month or maybe March, I guess. Right? I, I I haven't heard yet. I will let you, you know. Heard, and, no. and I know I know you'll say something and you didn't. You haven't said anything about it, so, it you know. It hadn't come across my desk yet, but I'll be watching for it. And, uh, you know, uh, it's, do you know what, like what kind of trees? What what do they give away, or is it different kind of trees? Or, it's almost or, always they're small trees, and it's almost always oh. you know. Uh, CPS Energy has their list of approved trees, and Saws has their list of what they call water saver plants. So my thinking thought is that it is probably going to be things like Monterey oaks and. Uh, um, you know, some of the ones that are good quality trees, but relatively 
low water using once they become established. But uh, I'll check into it and see so, what I can find out for you, Sylvia. So you have to have that in a real good spot because it's going to get pretty big, right? If I, if I get Depends on the individual trees. tree. Yeah. You, you always oh, want to okay. account for how big it's going to be. You never want to plant an oak, for instance, right underneath a power line. But, uh, you know, right. there are other things that grow tree-like, like crepe myrtles, Mexican olives, mountain laurels. There are lots of good trees that do very well that don't ever get up big enough to be a problem in that regard so um i'm i okay. i'll just have to see what more i can learn and i'll sure let you know when i do okay okay great bob okay th- thanks for your time thank you you're welcome sylvia thank you okay bye. bye all right next up is adam good morning adam good morning bob morning sir i have a question about some rows and flower beds um that i wanted to i have a theory as to what the problem is so i wanted to get your thoughts on it okay um, but I have some cyclamen and some snapdragons, cyclamen in a shady area and some snapdragons in a sunnier area. Uh-huh. And I got, I'm trying to get the beds prepared for roses, for example, where the snapdragons are. So I brought in some compost, mixed it with some of the native soil. Uh-huh. But I'm not getting great results with both plants. And so I can't help but wonder if I, I have too much compost for those plants because I've heard you talk about the lack of oxygen. Yeah. Yeah, I I would be very surprised uh, that uh, t- having too much compost would be a problem, especially if it's uh, you know if it's well decomposed. I mean, I I'll never forget uh, a number of years ago, I had the pleasure of going to Switzerland, and the healthiest squash I've ever seen in my life was basically on a on a compost pile outside of a barn. So, if you're not, how often are you fertilizing, and what are you using? I'll use the Medina products um, probably once a month, probably when I get around to it. Okay, the dry or the liquid? Uh, the liquid. I I bump it up to every two weeks, and uh-huh. um, uh, we have had, you know, a few weather-related issues. The snapdragons don't really. The frost is hard on the buds, but not the plants. Where the snaps are protected from frost, uh, they're absolutely spectacular right now. I've seen a bunch of snapdragon beds so that the plants are growing well. They're just not blooming real well. And it's because the buds got frozen back here, what, three weeks ago, I guess, last time we had a fairly hard freeze. But um, I would, I'd about double your frequency of fertilizing. And as the weather warms up, you should get spectacular results. But, uh, I uh, I I think I'd go for a little more often on the fertilizing and I think that'll give you the bed the what you're looking for. Okay. To your point the snapdragons have great foliage and I, I do see that the actual plants are growing. Yeah. Cyclamen on the other hand um I feel like the leaves are kind of rotting away and I'm not getting many blooms at all. How often are you watering? So, that was so I time I figured you were going to ask that. I feel like because of the colder weather I'm probably not watering as much. I associate cooler weather with not as drying out as much so Perhaps I should water uh, every couple of days versus every week. Well, that deep watering when I do water. Yeah, you you need to water really, really thoroughly when you water. I mean, I always tell people there's no such thing as too much, but there is too often. So get out and actually feel the soil. Uh, when I see leaves rotting away, it's frequently because they've gotten too dry. And when that happens, you lose a lot of the root hairs that take the water up. So you increase your watering, but then they stay too wet because they can't process the water, you know, as efficiently with the compromised okay. root system. So when you water, really flood, but feel that soil and don't water again till the water, till the soil's dry about half an inch deep. 
maybe hit them with a little Garrett juice, a little Super Thrive, something like that, to try to get some roots reestablished. Because uh, if they're just drooping and if you have some leaves rotting away, something's happened you, you know, to the root system, and you need to build that back up as much as you can. Okay. I appreciate you helping me eliminate one of the one of my suspicions. Well, I appreciate your call, and uh, you have a great day, great weekend. Let me know how they go for you. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Adam. Sure will. All right. Back to gardening. It should be Dan and James and Gloria and Leslie in that order. And Dan's up first. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. Um, I I, uh, I live out in the hill country close to Natural Bridge Caverns. Very good. And uh, several years ago, I had an opportunity to speak with uh, Malcolm Beck, God rest his soul. Right. Uh, and we discussed the, the issue of oak wilt. Uh-huh. And uh, as you probably are aware, in and around that area, there's an oak wilt center. Oh, yeah. And uh, I'm hearing, uh, uh, well, I've heard several, uh, I'll get one from you later. Uh, there were several um, <clears throat> um, uh, views on that. Uh, one was uh, to feed the tree as much as you could with nourishment uh, to help it be strong when it does get attacked by the disease because it, apparently it works like a stroke. And the other school of thought was not to feed the tree so that it doesn't have open up the capillaries for, for the disease to get in there and kill it. Now, Malcolm mentioned that uh, the method he was using to help to save the trees was to um, use a water drill and first around the drip line of the trees put green sand, uh, corn gluten, and compost mm -hmm. and, uh, and use a water drill, you know, drilling a hole every three or four feet all the way around the base of the tree. And supposedly that helped. But what I'm trying to find out is if there has been any new uh, promising uh, studies that have helped these trees oh, because totally. we're, we're totally. really suffering out here now. Yeah, they're, they're, they're totally. Really it's everywhere. Uh, the Forest Service hasn't changed much, and they're still into charge. You know, buying this expensive chemical, but uh, it's been well documented now. A lot of research coming out of Europe because people in this country just haven't invested the time to look at it, but. They, it's a pretty well accepted fact by in the scientific arboriculture community that plants have a way of building their own immune system. It's totally different from anything in animals, and uh, it is not a one-to-one -one response. Our bodies, uh, we are insulted by some form of protein or virus or whatever, and our bodies build a defense against it if we have a healthy immune system. What has been pretty well documented now is that plants, on the other hand, if exposed to certain things, they build an overall uh, immunity resistance. It's good these days. Uh, they haven't decided on any one name for it. Some places will refer to it as systemic acquired resistance. Others will call it uh, systemic immune resistance. 
but there are things that trigger this. Uh, three of the top ones that have been found to do this, one of them is salicylic acid. Uh, in Europe, they're, they're accomplishing this by using willows, uh, freshly ground willow mulch, which is high in salicylic acid. Uh, biochar has been found to induce this systemic uh, acquired resistance. And what I have promoted for years, probably for 25 years or longer, I've been talking about using cornmeal. And, you know, it is now accepted that uh, the trichoderma fungus, beneficial fungus, which grows on cornmeal, uh, it does this. And basically, I've talked to a lot of people who have cured trees that had oak wilt and a lot of other people who have prevented their trees from getting oak wilt. So I would encourage you to look at some of the things that are being done with cornmeal and corn water tea. I buy uh, I buy hay from a fella up in uh, the Sisterdale area where Oakwills is horrible. It's probably been ten years since he showed me two big, maybe forty inch caliper oak trees that were like half defoliated with oak wilt. And he said, "I just really want to know what I can do for these trees." I got them using uh, cornmeal. He's also a pig farmer and got him to you know harvest as much pig poop as he could out of his barns and pens. And I was, well, I was up there buying hay this week. And those two trees, you'd hardly know they'd ever had a problem. And yet all the untreated trees around the area were totally dead from the oak wilt. So, yes, there is some very good research out there. Are you going to hear about it from the Forest Service? No. Are you going to hear about it from uh, these guys that want to come around and charge you $500 a tree to inject them with propicanazole or alamo? You're probably not going to. But, um uh, you know, it, what we are finding works well. We used to put out dry corn meal and got very good results with it. Now they are finding that if you simply make a corn water tea, if, and the rate uh, varies a little bit, I usually recommend about a cup of corn meal to a five gallon bucket of water. Let it stand for at least two hours. I think it's better overnight and then simply pour that liquid around the base of the tree, normally within 10 feet of the trunk, a smaller tree, five, six inches in diameter, one five-gallon bucket is probably enough, bigger tree, two, giant trees, maybe four or five buckets, where we're trying to prevent oak wilt. Uh, the recommendation is to do this about every six months. If you have trees that already have oak wilt that isn't too far advanced, I think you could do it maybe every three months. And uh, it does indeed, all other things, uh, you know, being equal, it does save trees from oak wilt and does prevent oak wilt. Now, as far as Malcolm's water drill and things like that, anything that aerates the soil is going to improve the overall health of the tree. Uh, anything, you know, uh, if the root, if the tree is buried at all, simply exposing the root flare is going to help the tree a great deal. And all these things will improve the health of the tree, but... Um, I would not compare it to a stroke. The way oak wilt works, it's a uh, it's a fungus that basically plugs up. I mean, compare it more to the hardening of the arteries if you want a, a human something right. to compare it to. But it plugs up the vessels, the xylem in the tree that transports from the, the water from the roots to the top of the tree. And um, uh, so anything that overall improves the health of the tree, like root flare exposure, uh, and aerifying around the roots, and Malcolm's water drill works absolutely wonderfully. And uh, uh, you know, it wasn't just oak trees. His his first real success with that came on a giant pecan tree in his yard, 
and um, water drills are a wonderful thing, but I, I'm certainly not going to tell you that they do anything to decrease your tree's um, likelihood of getting oak wilt. I think if you're going to do that, you've got to use something that's going to help build up this uh, acquired resistance. You're going to have to stay away from synthetic fertilizers that work against the process. You're going to have to stay away from weed killers like weed and feed products, which make your trees more susceptible in my experience. But uh, there are very definitely some new techniques out there um, that that are showing very, very good results. Matter of fact, I have made a note. I want to talk to Howard Garrett and find out if he's he's been working with some people west of Fort Worth where they also have severe problems. And I want to ask him if he's, you know, found anything new or different. But, uh, um, yeah, I... Yeah, that's, that's some great information there because I was, I was kind of curious as to if that was the case uh, where if you nourished a tree that it would actually survive from that because I've got an oak tree that we pretty much built our house next to mm-hmm. uh, that we feel is probably about, oh, I don't know, 150 or 200 years old. It's a twin oak tree, and it still has a lot of foliage on it. But when we first got there, we noticed that there were two spires that stuck up in the middle of the tree. Now, whether that occurred from a lightning strike or, or what, we don't know. But in and around our area, there the, the oak wilt is getting pretty prominent. And well, if you've ever driven past Natural Bridge Caverns and you look on the yeah. right-hand side as you're headed west, yep. you'll see a lot of trees out there dying. Well, so, um, But this is great information. The, the, we're going to take a look at the corn gluten. but No, uh, not corn uh, and gluten. Were, not, not, excuse me, not corn gluten. Corn gluten is a totally different product. You want whole ground cornmeal. Corn gluten is much more expensive, and it's oh. not as effective as whole ground cornmeal. Corn oh. gluten is the protein component that's left after they take the syrup, uh, the sugary corn syrup, out of the corn. You want whole ground cornmeal, which costs about a fourth as much and is much more effective oh, yeah. at growing the trichoderma. Well, wow, that's great information there. That I'm getting confused about it, I guess, but uh, I really appreciate that information, sir. And we're going to have and a couple of seminars a little later this spring. Oh. I'll let you know when they come up. and. Uh, We'll be talking about this and other things related to tree health. So, uh, yeah, there are things going on, and uh, so much of it's coming out of Europe now because Europe has banned many of the problem pesticides, uh, and so they're they're having to spend a little bit more time looking for natural solutions to things, and uh, it is becoming yeah. much more mainstream. So stay in touch, Dan, we and we'll look forward to helping you in the future, yeah. and I appreciate it. Ah, uh, next up is James. What's going on today, James? Oh man, I'm really enjoying your show. Talking <laughs> about Malcolm and trees, and I got a water pick out there. I bought from him about 20 years you ago. You and me both. You and me both. Um, yeah, I lit my candle last night, and I was waiting on the lights to go out, but we <laughs> made it. Uh, we made it, man. Yeah, I had. Uh, I don't know about you know north of me, but uh, I was sort of the same way. I I got those great LED flashlights and spotlights and things like that. But fortunately, uh, if there were any power outages, is after I was already asleep. But uh, no, it was it, we we're fortunate to uh, actually have a widespread rain event. Now, some folks definitely got more than others, but uh, it was it was one of the broader broader events that i've seen in the past four or five months so uh hope the trend continues well i'm looking at the one of the holes in the road up there and it looks like we've got about an inch of rain judging by that 
well, no, maybe about three quarters of an inch. But, That's about uh, what I got better. was about three quarters. But I haven't had a chance to look at the uh, Kokorov's map. But I'll bet you some folks up around Comfort and you know up in that area probably got two or three inches. But uh, it was it was a good rain. I you know I haven't heard. I know there was a report of a tornado. Uh, up somewhere northeast of Candelia, and some folks got some hail, but I haven't heard of any bigger damaging hail. But there were some bad winds, so wasn't all great, but, boy, the moisture was sure welcome. Yes, sir. Uh, the reason I called is uh, I was poking around on the uh, uh, tomato bed that I'm getting ready for this year's uh, production. <laughs> and last year, I like to use a, a full-season cover crop. Uh-huh. Of Sudan. Okay. The roots of that crop get tilled in in around September. Well, all the whole, the whole crop gets tilled in around September. But I noticed with a couple of applications of the Medina soil activator and the molasses that there's really no distinguishable roots or plant matter in that uh in that soil profile they've all been consumed by the by the soil well and that's that's a sign of a healthy soil and a healthy biology in the soil it's really amazing uh, how fast (laughs) that soil consumes those roots it's uh, with a little bit of help from medina well with a lot of help from medina it was just uh really amazing to me i thought i'd share that with you guys uh this morning well it's you're absolutely right you've done your part because you've applied a little moisture every now and then when you needed it but you know having good soil just good soil tends to get better you know when you're doing the kind of things that you're doing and that is giving the microbes the energy they need to do their decomposing work and um you know that's that's kind of the secret to soil building and you've just taken it to a to a real good degree by with your cover crops with putting more you know relatively soft uh you know and 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 the roots the stems the whatever what's left over from growing an annual grain which is basically what sudan is uh they're not nearly as tough as tree roots and things like that so you've just you've got a a good healthy soil profile and you're you're giving it all the energy it needs to do that and it in return is just adding more and more organic material to the soil so stand back and wait for those tomatoes to grow man it's hard to believe that we're just uh how how close we are time we're going to be putting tomato plants in the garden yeah i'm looking at some uh uh, grafting rootstock right now i'm getting Mm -hmm. ready uh ready to uh well it's not quite ready yet but is going to get grafted up to uh, uh, some production plants. You know, you talked to Howard once about grafting, and he wasn't really happy, you know, on board with it. He was kind of like a naysayer, you know. But if if you can do grafting and you can produce a plant that does not require herbicides or pesticides or any of the chemicals that big agriculture use i think it's a plus plus oh i do too i do too it's uh you know there's a little time and a little bit of uh expense involved in it but i think you've shown us that uh the grafted tomatoes are very productive and do avoid a lot of the other problems well that's kind of the reason we were going that way but he 
when you talked to him about it, he was like, well, yeah, maybe, but he was really on board with it. And I guess I can see his point where, uh, you know, it's it's too much. It's too much work, but um, it's the it's what's happening, man. Every everybody's uh, the the big growers are doing it, or either buying the grafted tomatoes. So uh-huh. it's it's going to be in your neighborhood pretty soon. Oh, I have no doubt. Um, and but you're doing your own grafting. You've uh, you've learned how to do it, and you're producing your own plants, aren't you? Yeah, um, I mentioned to you when we talked about this last that. I had to buy one of those uh, a little, uh, oh, what the jeweler uses to see what he's doing, yeah. little magnifiers yeah. that have a headband. That's that's the only extra equipment I needed because it's, uh, you know, the older, the get, older you get, the, the <laughs> more you need help. Well, that's true. But, you know, you're also a little further ahead because uh, – you do want to do your grafting fairly early in the season, which requires a greenhouse or, you know, similar structure where you can get your plants going, where you can get your grafts growing. It's it's not something that you can do after the weather warms up enough to do it outside. So it's definitely a little bit more work, and uh, the grafted plants are not real commonly available on the market yet. So like you say, it's, it's uh, something whose time is coming but it's just like anything, it takes a little while to change the paradigm and uh, and, and get everybody trying it. And it may not work as well for some folks. We'll we'll wait and see. But it certainly is, as you have shown, it's a, a good, consistent way to produce good fruit. Well, that's what we're hoping, you know, and we can uh, continue on. Uh, there, there's not a lot of equipment that's required it's just so are you are you buying are you buying your rootstock or are you producing your own rootstocks from with uh cuttings from existing plants that are suitable to use as a rootstock uh johnny's selected seed has uh three three yeah three varieties of rootstock seed Uh uh-huh the estimino is the organic and that's what i use and then they've got some um rootstocks that you would be using for indeterminates in the greenhouse okay but we're growing determinants and indeterminates in the field so the estimino is a real good uh, rootstock for soil so you just grow the plants and then uh, get them up to a certain size and then do your your grafting it's called a japanese uh top grafting or you Uh can do uh approach uh grafting which is a side graft if right. you want to right it's real simple stuff yeah, and if it's... i can do it i think anybody <laughs> well it's you know what we've what we've got to do is just get a ready supply of things on the market because i i think it's a very good thing that so many people into gardening that have limited time and quite frankly uh you know the young professional or whoever that doesn't have the time that you know somebody like yourself that is uh that's not working 40 or 50 hours a week at a full-time punch-the-clock job um they want something they can go out and buy and stick in the ground and then come back and harvest tomatoes and we're not quite to the point on availability on that yet but uh, that's our own fault we just need to get the supplies of the materials up 
and then we need to do some good research. I hope this year that maybe you will do what old Malcolm used to do, and that is actually weigh the production and get some good uh, that's what I fight on this uh, Oakwell tissue all the time is, you know, show me your research, show me your data. And now that's out there. Um, but, uh, you know, when you get to the point that you can say my plants produce on average 200 percent more fruit and it's good fruit, then you start getting people's attention and more people want to give it a try. So it's just uh, it's a it's a technology, so to speak, that is in its infancy. And we just have to. It's just we're going to have to be patient while the world catches up with people like James. Well, I sure appreciate your show, and I was really uh, happy that you guys were talking trees and talking about uh, good, my good old buddy Malcolm Beck. I uh, I really like your show, and and uh, I appreciate what everything you do for us, Bob. Yeah. It's it's my pleasure, and I just I try to share everything I learn. And boy, Malcolm was certainly one of my mentors, as is Howard Garrett, as was Alton Grimm, as was my grandfather. And so uh, it's just uh, you 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 just have to keep your mind open and talk to a lot of people, and then find out what works for you. And James, that's why I always enjoy our visits. And uh, well, I'm I'm going to look at this uh, Estima. It's the rootstock that you figure feel is the best for just a field estimino okay yeah uh hey you're talking about people that we've learned things from i was pulling weeds yesterday and uh i was thinking uh how i learned how to do that uh you know mom my old gray-haired mama taught me just about everything i know about gardening and even even uh pulling weeds was was one of her techniques so we need to pass it on, you know. Amen. Well, you're doing that mentoring more and more young people all the time. That's what we try to do with our seminars at the nursery. So you keep up your good work. I'll do my best to keep up with mine, and I always look forward to our next visit, James. Thanks, Bob. Thank you, sir. All right, let's quickly get back to phone lines and back to gardening, and uh, Gloria is up next. Good morning, Gloria. Good morning, Bob. I have a question. Okay. I have uh, two little citrus trees. I don't even know what they are. My mom gave them to me in a coffee can about 15 years ago, and I didn't know any better. I planted them way back in the backyard, and they get a lot of shade now. They're only like about three feet tall, and like I say, it's been 15 years. Wow. They're real tiny, so I need to move them. I don't even know what they are. Can you tell me? Uh, when I can move them and how and whether they need to be grabbed. Are they uh, are they leafy trees? Uh, they're not palm trees. They're like, do they drop their leaves oh, no, in the? No, no, because I have other citrus trees and uh, uh, you know the, they get pretty leaves, real green, and they uh-huh. don't freeze. Okay, it could be because they're under kind of under a mesquite tree so they get a little bit of protection yeah. from freeze because they they never freeze i used to worry about them but they're always green well but they're not growing anymore but the leaves you know i take some of the leaves smell them they smell like my other citrus trees well they probably are, are just a citrus who has grown from a seed now would be the best time of year to move them and sometime in the next month would be the best time to dig them and move them to their new home um, be sure that 
that you know you're not burying them too deeply be sure the roots are right up close to the surface of the ground or at the surface of the ground when you replant and uh fertilize regularly you know good liquid organic fertilizer i put some maybe some dry fertilizer in the hole but then follow up with uh one of your fish emulsion types or something like medina's new uh liquid fish and uh, get them out in more sun feed them a little bit more often there's no reason they shouldn't start growing a lot better for you loria they've already proven that they're cold hardy um if they are indeed i wouldn't worry about grafting them until they bloom for the first time which once you get them out in the sunnier area they they probably bloom Mm -hmm. next time around but figure out if they're producing good fruit for you. If they're not producing a fruit you like, then at that point you can graft some different kind of citrus onto them and keep going. But for now, I'd move them to a sunnier area, and I would be feeding real regularly. Okay, I have one other question. Being that they're that old, do you think, because I'm going to have to do the digging myself, uh, do you think that the, the root down there is uh, pretty big? How big do the roots get? Well, citrus grown from a seed will make a tap root. So, yeah, you're going to have to dig, but these are not big trees. You're going to have to dig a root ball that's, you know, maybe 12, 14 inches wide and maybe about the same depth. But you should certainly be able to move a tree that's that small. You should be able to move it successfully. But be prepared to dig down and get a fairly deep root ball because that tree probably does have a tap root. Okay, and I want to do it as a memory for my mom. You know, she's passed away, so I thought, well, at least, you know, I can try. So I'm gonna Absolutely. Do we'll do it sometime real soon, and I certainly wish you the best results on that, Gloria. Good luck with it. And let me get uh, let me get Leslie in here right now. Good morning, Leslie. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Um, listen, I have to apologize to your screener. I told him I had an iris question, but I was thinking about irises at that time. Well, hey, we don't even put that up on the screen, so I'll answer okay. any question I possibly can. Okay, my question is about gingers. Um, this past year, I had, um, you know, various gingers in a pot. I have, you know, spiral ginger and a bunch of butterfly gingers in pots. Um, do you think they're better, hardier in the ground? Well, there are a lot of different plants that people group into what they call gingers. Some of them are like your uh, alpinia, like your white gingers or butterfly gingers, are quite cold hardy. A number of other gingers, such as, uh, you know, the common culinary ginger we use, is not nearly so cold-hardy. So we're almost going to have to figure out the different kinds of ginger that you have. Now, and then there are gingers like the variegated ginger, which has gotten to be a very common landscape plant. And it is pretty well cold-hardy, but unfortunately, we can't group them all in one group and say everything's going to do better in the ground the cold hardier ones will certainly be easier to maintain in the ground than they are in a pot but not all gingers are going to be totally cold hardy and this is especially true of uh you know some of the things you see over in hawaii and you know where a lot of our a lot of people bring back gingers from the islands and uh, uh they are just not cold hardy enough they can be planted in the ground they have to stay in pots so I uh, really need to look at the individual varieties to well, give you a good answer to that. Um, excuse me, I'm sorry. They are, um, you know, I guess the commonly, you know, called butterfly gingers. I have one in the ground. Yep. Butterfly gingers, yeah, they're fine in the ground in San mm-hmm. Antonio. Put them in a pretty sunny spot, 
and mulch them. It's normal for them to freeze down, but we've had them for years, and they've never failed to come back, and they just get bigger and thicker. I, I think they do much better in the ground. All your butterfly gingers do. Okay. And I I just wanted to, the lady that called earlier regarding the free trees, uh-huh. I just wanted to, I, my son had sent me a link. Um, we, we send it back and forth whenever we um, get news of it. But this um, free tree event at the Pearl will be on the 25th of January. Oh, okay. Very good. Starting at 8 o'clock. Okay. And they are fruit and nut trees. Very good. 8 o'clock okay. on the 25th of January down at the Pearl. Yeah. And it's put on by um, Parks and Rec. Very good. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it so much, Leslie. You're very welcome. And I have I have gotten trees from them, and they're good trees. Excellent. So, um, you know, get there early and bring as many people <laughs> as you can. <laughs> Sounds like a good plan. And thank All you. All right, then. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for your help. Always a pleasure. Bye. All right. See ya. Play back to the phone lines. It is Mac's turn. Good morning, Mac. Good morning. Morning, sir. Well, I had one of my questions answered. I had a question on cornmeal, and that's already been covered before I called. So Very good. I did have, uh, I finally learned to keep my notepad out when I'm listening to you. <laughs> and I had called once before, and I had lost what I had jotted down. One of my questions today is on mountain laurel seeds. Uh-huh. I just start. Well, mountain laurel seeds have sort of a waxy coating on the seed that can, you know, protect them in nature for years before they germinate. When we want them to germinate, we'll take something like a a file or something like that, and you don't need to make a hole in the seed, but just enough of a scratch to kind of uh, break through that little waxy layer. Then soak them in water for a couple of hours, plant them, you'll get almost 100% germination, and it'll happen a lot more quickly. Okay. What's the best time of uh, day, or day, excuse me, year to plant those? Um, well, look at when Mother Nature drops them, which is in June or July. I think any time I'd wait till we get past the danger of a really hard freeze, but uh, I'd say probably March or April is when I'd be planting them. Okay. My next question. Here, a couple of days ago, I came across a uh, Mexican buckeye, Mm -hmm. and it had uh, the seed pods were, uh, I just noticed it, and I don't know when when this happened, but the seed pods looked uh, mature, they were uh, cracked, Uh and they had uh, the little seeds rattling around in them, they were dry. They're big seeds, not little seeds, they should be the size of a small jelly bean, and you don't have to do a thing to the thing except plant those. But as you know, if you've been listening for any length of time, the next 30 minutes we spend talking with the dirt doctor. We'll save some time at the end of the show for more questions. But uh, this is always one of my most fun times of Saturday mornings when I get to say good morning, Howard Garrett. Good day, all. And did you guys get any storm passing through the area last night, or was it all further south? Yeah, it was just kind of noisy. We got a little rain. It cooled off. Uh, got enough moisture to get the the ground uh, somewhat wet, so it wasn't bad. Didn't get a huge amount, and I didn't hear about any damage. They were worried about some tornado activity and things like that, but didn't hear that that we had any bad problems in this one. So that's a good thing. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. This is the best rain I've had in 
probably four months or so i got about three quarters of an inch but uh oh it's uh we need a lot more but <laughs> i'm just thankful it's uh, this is first lightning and thunder that i've seen and it's just we've been in a pattern of getting these little drizzly things where it just uh you know just kind of sits there and drizzles and gets messy and you end up with four one hundredths of an inch or something out of it but uh this was actually a good rainstorm so i hope it's hope it's a trend we're going to see we don't need the hail we don't need the tornadoes but man it's it's good to hear rain pounding down instead of just looking out and seeing all the mess out there yeah i guess it's gone for a while now a few pretty days uh, kind of mild winter that that's a good thing. I left some aloe vera plants. One of the plants that I like a whole lot uh, that I use inside and out of those little spiky aloes that uh-huh. are available now. I don't know what the the real name of them is. But I left them on the front porch, and we probably got down to about 34 last night. I don't think that will hurt them at oh, all. Oh, no, I don't. I, I don't may need to move so. them in tonight, uh, this afternoon. Yeah, there. You know, we have uh, some of the different aloes, and I I don't know all the species on them either. But uh, there's some really pretty, fairly cold hardy ones that'll go down at least into the middle twenties. I don't think they have the medicinal qualities of the aloe vera, but boy, talk about spikes of beautiful orangish flowers and um, just a different look in the landscape. That's. Uh, I uh, don't know that they'd take Dallas temperatures, but down here I'm I'm seeing more and more of them in the landscapes and probably really? will until we get one of those 15-degree winters, <laughs> and yeah, then I'm, that'll change I'm, for a while. I'm just using them in pots, but all of mine are uh, in bloom right now. They're just really looking pretty. And they can take, which is interesting, they can take a lot of uh, pretty dark mm-hmm. conditions inside They'll change color. I was noticing the difference in the two, the one that I had in the dark inside and the one that had a whole lot of light. There was a lot of difference. The one with more light was a much darker color. Really? Uh-huh. Yeah, and it's not good to do that over an extended period of time, but during the winter, if you do have them in pots and you want to have something inside that's pretty cool, it's a it's a good one to think about. It is. It is, and there are, you know, there, there are a number of succulents out there, and the the succulents are, for the most part, they're pretty tough, pretty durable little plants, and they're never going to be happy for a long period of time. But, you know, even the Haworthias, the Stapelias, uh, uh, lots of the sedums, uh, you know, a few weeks inside just to protect them from the cold doesn't seem to bother them. You get them out in the spring, and they just take off, and uh, I can see why they're, they're, they're so popular. That's probably the single group of plants that we've had more interest in, especially from our younger friends and customers. Uh, but succulents are, are just kind of the rage now. And uh, there are a lot of interesting things out there. I'll just put it that way. Well, I'm doing a uh, follow-up on my column that I wrote about ladybugs due to a letter that I got from one of the one of the uh, listeners, one of the readers. They sent me a uh, a letter saying that they really enjoyed my column on ladybugs, but I forgot a very important point in in the column, and that and they said that I should have said that they fly away <laughs> and that they really don't work very well to release. To release. And, and the reason that made me write a whole other column was that I knew without even verifying it with him, which I did, that he didn't write, he didn't buy the ladybug I wrote the column about. The mm-hmm. ladybug I wrote the column about primarily is the twice-stabbed ladybug. 
that's an arboreal uh, creature. Uh-huh. You can't buy them. <laughs> right. The only ones you can buy are the, uh, that I'm pretty sure of. This may be changing a little bit. Well, there's two, there's two ladybugs you can buy. One is the um, convergent ladybug, which is the one that's the most common, uh, orange with black stripes. Right. has the two lines on the pronotum on the shield behind the head. The other one you can buy is called Cryptolamus, which is um, the mealybug destroyer, which yeah. is really good in greenhouses for mealybug control. It's the one that has the larvae that look like little rag mops. <laughs> look a lot like mealybugs, as a matter of fact, and yet that's... They her... look a lot like mealybugs, yeah. just a little little wilder-looking hairdos. And uh, <clears throat> Malcolm kind of named them the uh, rag mops, and that ended up being in the Texas bug book. Other people may have used it, I don't I don't know, but the the I talked about that. My main point was that if you use the organic program and uh, the fertilizers that we recommend and the uh, non toxic, non killing uh, pesticides, even try to stay away from the organic right. killing pesticides, that the uh, Twistab ladybug will just show up. You yep. don't have to buy them and put them out. And also the um, one called seven-spotted ladybug, which is a lot more common than people think because a lot of people see it and think it's the convergent because it's about the same color, but it's got fewer spots. Mm-hmm. And then the other one is the pink lady uh, ladybug, and it's uh, it's beneficial. And all those will just show up. You know, the ash gray will show up. You don't see them that much because they like to be way high up in trees. And... And there's some others as well, but the the whole point of that is if you're going to buy some, <laughs> the only one you're going to buy is that uh, convergent, and if you yeah. don't release it properly, it will fly away. And the way to release it properly is to do it in the early morning or late in the afternoon after you wet the foliage down or there's dew on the foliage, and you let them out a little bit at a time and see if they hang around. If they start flying off, you put them in the refrigerator and wait a little while and try again later. Well, on the other hand, the final recommendation that I'm trying to make clear in this second column is I don't really recommend buying them mm-hmm. as far as serious pest control anyway. They're fun. I think they're really good education for kids and things like that and to do on a temporary basis. But and I, that, I couldn't agree with you more. That's probably we sell more of them to teachers and Girl Scout groups and uh yeah. And and but it gets people recognizing the value of beneficial insects and, you know, teaching them about life cycles because the adult ladybugs don't do a whole lot of, you know, consumption of pests. They do some. But, boy, it's that larval state that just really gets after them. And, uh, yeah, I love them for educational purposes, but really serious insect control, not going to do it. Well, I wanted people to be able to identify them because the twice-stab ladybug is probably the most beneficial of all of them, and its larvae look, I mean, its pupil cases look totally different than any others around. And I learned something when I was doing the first column, too. Somebody, one of the listeners sent me a photograph of some of the pupae that had uh, a different color. They had the spiny look, you know, looking like mm-hmm. a little urchin, sea urchin, uh-huh. but they weren't black like I've always uh, seen and what we've got in the bug book. But they were a tan color, and there were a whole bunch of them clustered uh, together. In fact, I even questioned my uh, 
decision to <laughs> tell them what I told them when I first saw it because I'd never seen that color and I'd never seen them clustered together that heavily. But uh, the, it turns out that that's what they are. And even the adults, sometimes when they hatch out, there'll be a lighter color for a while before they turn that black, shiny color and have the red dots on their back. Oh, so interesting. The other thing, too, and I'm sure you've covered it, I, I haven't read that article yet, but uh, the things that you can plant to attract them, but then explaining to people the plants don't attract them. It's the aphids that come to the plants that attract the ladybugs. And, of course, down here we grow a lot of uh, what they call the uh, Mexican milkweed, the Asclepius uh, curvasica, or a duck. Never sure I'm pronouncing the species name correctly, but it's such a pretty little, you know, ornamental, and it probably would be an annual in Dallas. Here it's sometimes perennial, sometimes not, but it's gotten to be so commonly used in landscapes, but it's teaching people that the aphids are not a problem. They don't ever seem to go to anything else, and it's those aphids that bring in not only the ladybugs, but the assassin bugs and you know, all the different things that come in. <laughs> but it's plants don't attract ladybugs, bugs attract ladybugs, and you just have to plant the right plants to bring the proper aphids in. Well, it always surprises me when I run into people that have been organic for a while that that ask me what the larva of the ladybug is when they show me they yep. don't, you know, they run into those little alligator looking things on plants. And I tell people the same thing you do, that when aphids show up, the first step is not to grab some kind of a pest control. You know, even a soapy water spray or something like that, you really need to refrain from until after you've looked to see if there's any ladybugs. And usually there are, you know, either eggs or, or larvae. And the pupae of the some of the ladybugs look like little alien space creatures. You know, the, <laughs> the twice-stabbed one is the only one that looks like a sea urchin. The, as far as I know, but it's um, it's just a learning experience that a lot of people sometimes haven't taken the time to look at. I was showing some people at Collin County Community College years ago in the roses in the lantana. They were about to spray something. I said, mm-hmm. oh, no, let's look first. And I started looking at the backs of leaves a little bit, and it turns out there were ladybugs at different stages just all over the place, and they were like, oh, put this stuff away we don't need to be spraying anything it's obvious well and it brings up another point too i think one of the greatest gifts you can give kids that are interested in such things is a little magnifying glass or a little hand loop or we we get something uh, from a company that specializes in gardening things for kids that i think they call it a creature peeper or something like that but it's like a little chamber that you can put any of those things in and you can view it at different magnifications looking through the top and through the sides and you know once once you've gotten kids able to actually see to magnify those things to the point that they really look interesting it's just so much fun just getting kids totally hooked on nature and uh, a magnifying glass and ladybug larvae is are good places to start uh, i totally agree and even the people that are organic out there listening that might be a good idea to kind of look at the do a, a refresher look at the different uh, ladybugs that we covered in the texas bug book because those are the ones you're going to see most commonly but on the other hand remember that there will be some that will pop up that uh, you may have never seen before i may have never seen them i'm always running into something new i got a new phone now i got one of the 11s and i'm really looking forward to being able to use it because it takes pictures of close-up so much better very good 
I tell you one other thing that is always good to tell people about ladybugs so they don't know it is they will bite. <laughs> I think that's yeah. that's one of the things that I think surprises people most is oh they oh it's just really cute let that thing run up down my arm and on my wrist and things like that and and then all of a sudden they they can nip you pretty good. I don't know exactly why they do that, but it's uh, most people think it's just such an adorable little creature and then it chomps down on them. Well, that's exactly right, and a lot of people think it's mainly because of some incorrect uh, columns that have been written. That they think that primarily happens from the Japanese imported one, the, mm-hmm. the uh, Harmonia. Right. I did a photo shoot years ago where I released the convergent ones, our natives, on on me for the photograph <laughs> and on my neck, and I got several pretty pretty uh, nice bites. So any of them will do that. <laughs> Not just the. Mm-hmm. The imported uh, one that has been identified as a pest, unfortunately, in a lot of cases. Yeah, well, it's, you know, the of course, you all did so much in the... And I've always loved the subtitle, The Good, the Bad, the Ugly, on the Texas Bug Book. And that is just such a great book. And it just it illustrates so many different things that people see. But, golly, it's just hard to know what all to put in. Because you could do as you've just done a whole chapter just on ladybugs. Oh, yeah, you could do a whole, a whole book on it. And I'm I'm going to be doing a little bit more research and get more uh, books, whatever books are on the market out there. I think it, I think there's a whole lot more to it than I've even been able to uncover so far. It's a fascinating little insect. Well, it is. And then you can move on to lace wings. And so much fun to show people how they put their egg up on top of that little silken support and uh, how if you've got a lot of bugs, they lay a bunch of eggs close together. If you don't have many pests and they spread them way out, it's, it's just this whole science of beneficial insects is really interesting. And uh, I don't know. One thing about the lace wings that's interesting, too, is that the uh, green lace wings lay their eggs on those little white whiskers. Mm-hmm. And they're pretty easy to to, uh, to see if you just kind of keep an eye out for them. And you'll see them stuck to the doors and trunks of trees and all kinds of things. One of the photographs I use in my uh, pest control talks is a line of them that are attached to my hard hat in my garage. <laughs> uh-huh. so, so they'll show up anywhere, and when and they're viable when they're still smooth and a little uh, greenish-white. When they're white and look like popcorn, they've already hatched, and you don't have to worry about hurting them. But the thing I was going to say that's also interesting is that there's a brown lace mm-hmm. wing also, which has the same benefits uh-huh. as the green, but it doesn't. Uh, sh- she doesn't lay her eggs on the uh, on the whiskers. She lays her eggs flat against the surface of the leaf or whatever it is. No, I did not know that. I Go see figure, both. Yeah. 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 What, yeah. Why the difference? One of my favorite memories uh, back when Roberta and I were doing a bunch of TV insert segments and. Uh, the TV station would send the cameraman out every couple of weeks and would shoot like five at a time. And I think it was Mandavia. We had picked out one afternoon. The cameraman were coming the next morning, and we found a Mandavia that was just a solid mass of aphids. There must have been, oh, maybe a 100 aphids on that one plant. And we saw, saw a couple of lacewing larvae on there. And we said, oh, this will make a great thing when the cameraman get here in the morning. Well, 8 o'clock the next morning, KMOL's cameramen show up, and the lacewings have eaten every single aphid off of that plant. There was not one aphid left anywhere, but it sure does tell you, you know, how how beneficial they are, how much, how many pests they can control. 
Yeah, if you see one or two, there's probably uh, 50 and and a bunch of other beneficials as well that you don't see. They're pretty good about hiding out. The twice stabbed ladybug is in that category. You don't you just don't see them that often, and people are kind of surprised by the uh, the column and the photographs that we're doing. Uh, showing what they look like. They're very common if you're looking for them, and uh-huh. if you're not, a lot of people will, will have never seen any of them. Well, and these will be uh, on DirtDoctor.com if they're not already there. They'll be up there shortly, and uh, folks who who don't happen to be able to get the Dallas Morning News uh, will have an opportunity to look at that uh, down here, and that's always fun. Well, we put, yeah, we put the entire co- column in. I sent, uh, use all of the photographs that I've sent into the paper, in the one that goes on DirtDoctor.com, and it's in the public area. You just go to the archives of the Dallas Morning News button. It's right there on the home home page, the front page, and that you'll see the one from last week. Uh, the first ladybug one's already up, and this one will be up uh, probably. It'll run next Thursday, so it'll probably be up Friday. Very good. Well, I'll I'll go back and look at the other one when I get over to a a computer. I can take time to to stop and look at. And you you say you feel like you're getting a lot more exposure since they have moved the position on your column within the paper. Yeah, it's all about positioning and persuasion and all that. The fact that I'm actually taking time to write these columns instead of just slap something together when I used to do the simple little Q and A's. Sure. I think is helping it's making me give a little bit more detailed information and actually look into things and learn and uh as a net result improve the other entries that are on dirtdoctor.com oh so much fun so much to do out there and uh i tell you i think 2020 is going to be a a real good decade but man i sometimes shudder at how much work we have to do to keep on doing all the things we do there's just so much opportunity out there and Right now, we're going through another big round of discussion about oak wilt. I'm getting more and more calls sure. about that. And uh, and it's just the, the evidence is out there. The scientific evidence is growing about this this process, I guess we can call it, the systemic acquired resistance or systemic induced resistance, showing that trees and other plants do indeed have their own form of immune system and we can use that to our advantage to stop some really horrible diseases there's so much of the hill country has just been devastated by oak wilt and uh, i had a friend send me a picture yesterday from uh, he'd gone up to lukenbach and here all these trees sitting there at 500 dollars a tree with them pumping the blasted chemical into them and you sit here saying why don't people learn that trichoderma that cornmeal that you know biochar these other things we talk about are more effective far more affordable and uh it just uh yeah it just lets us know what a job we have uh yeah i know you were working with some folks out west of fort worth at one time on some oak wilt issues with some natural controls have, have you kept up with that have you had the opportunity to get out there and see how they're doing no, I haven't seen that again. I need to get back with them and see what's going on. But we get we get a lot of reports from people all over the place that it uh, that it works and it works beautifully. I've, I have some people tell me that all they did was exposing the flare, and then mm-hmm. other people just did certain other parts of the sick tree treatment. If we could get enough people exposing the flare dramatically and doing the rest, of the entire process of, that we call the sick tree treatment, right. I think. I think you can stop oak wilt um, every time unless it has gone too far, you know, and the root system's already been killed 
past the point of no return. I don't have any any doubt about it. And I'm just continuing to be amazed at uh, how dramatic you can change mistletoe and gall infestation in a a plant by doing that. In the very next growing season, I mean, it'll be gone. I mean, there is no sign of galls in my lacy oak where I've done the test, and there's no sign of mistletoe that was loaded with it pretty good. And I didn't even do the whole program. I just exposed the base. And And didn't even expose the base as well as I really should have done. I, I'm always trying to learn a, a little bit of a new angle. Sometimes the plant, if you don't expose the flare dramatically, it won't recover. Mm-hmm. Sometimes just a little bit of an exposure makes a dramatic change in the tree. They're all different a little bit. But I think that the uh, bottom line on that is that it's impossible to overexpose the base of the tree well and you look at you know trees up in the pacific northwest and all where that seed has to land on the trunk of a tree a rotting tree and it has to start out two or three feet above the ground to survive i think that just tells you how you know how much those trees need their roots up toward the surface and uh that's true of so many of the redwoods and maybe some of the big uh, douglas firs and things like that but it comes right down to the oaks and the elms and all the other beneficial trees you know that that seed started out sprouting on the surface of the soil or very close to it and that's where the roots are supposed to be it's just the people planting them incorrectly and the developers trying to level a lot and piling so much dirt up around them and uh like you say they sure do respond when you uh when you expose it and then if you go the you know the next steps adding the paramagnetic rock adding the cornmeal doing the other things that it the sick tree treatment uh just i think it it not only benefits the trees physically but it starts this uh systemic immune response that makes them virtually immune to lots of different problems the things you're talking about along with hypoxylin and virtually every troublesome fungus out there well it's really interesting what some of the critics the, the trouble they go to there's a whole uh website that's about debunking cornmeal yeah. and uh, certain organic kind of things. And this lady, Ph.D., is one behind it. And they talk specifically about the A&M work that uncovered the fact that cornmeal works. They say that it wasn't a scientific <laughs> test and that probably, what all the, probably the only thing that really happened in that situation was that the crop rotation uh, ended up getting rid of the disease and solved the problem. What they don't, what they ignored was that the crop rotation had been going on for some time yeah. on all the crops, and the cornmeal was the only variable that finally solved the uh, rhizoctonia problem. But they don't want the truth. It's kind of one of the things that we're dealing with in politics these days. Truth <laughs> is something that is just really not that desirable to some people if it proves your point it's a good thing otherwise we're going to spin it to make it look bad i yep. i don't know no don't get me started on on news media I, my line is i wish they were elected so we could vote them out of office <laughs> <laughs> but uh now and it's and you know so many of the things that we have discovered starts with anecdotal evidence and you know people that 
you know, speak ill of so many of the things and say, oh, you just don't have any evidence. Well, maybe the first time we talked about it, we didn't. But nowadays there's good scientific evidence. And a lot of times that's what's so funny about the cornmeal is that uh, it was an A&M researcher who made that discovery. But rather than want to take credit for having learned a wonderful thing, you know, they took him away from doing what he was doing and started saying his research wasn't any good. So uh, go figure. Exactly right. But uh, we'll just keep uh, right on uh, moseying on. Y'all enjoy the moist soil out there and the uh, nice, cool weather. And uh, We'll uh, try to do this again next week. We look forward to it, Howard. And as always, we thank you for all you do. And uh, thank you for DirtDoctor.com. It's just a wonderful resource where people can go to learn if they choose to do so. <laughs> and fortunately, most of our listeners do. Enjoy it. We'll see you guys next week. Look forward to it, Howard. Thank you, sir. And Bye-bye. goodbye. If you've not visited DirtDoctor.com, do so. There is so much evidence on, or so much interesting information and articles and evidence of the good things that we talk about. But let me tell you, you can spend many a rainy day just informing yourself. And uh, if you want to sign up, we've got a couple of new employees. I think we're going to sign them up and uh, let them take the video course for the organic certification program. There's just a lot of good things that Howard and Doug and all the good folks that do the work up there have done and all the good stuff that Torque is doing. It's just just neat people and so glad to be able to visit with Howard on uh, on Saturday mornings. All right. Looks like we're going to talk to Landry and Martha and Wayne. And Landry's up first. Good morning. Good morning, Bob. Thank you for taking my call. Thank you for calling. So we have a live oak. At least that's what I think it is. Either a live oak or a hybrid of some sort. And it is in desperate need of trimming. Is this a good weekend for that? I'm I'm a little worried about um, oak wilt and everything else, so well, I wanted to get your opinion. There's not a bad weekend for trimming, in my opinion, uh, but I do believe that every wound should be sealed. It doesn't have to be pruning paint, but uh, even just okay. any kind of latex or anything else. Uh, the problem, of course, oak wilt is spread by these little nitty-doodle beetles, and everybody says, oh, well, it's cold, so you don't have to worry about that. Well, it takes about 10 days for the oak tree to naturally seal over that wound. And anybody who's lived here for very long knows we can be 30 degrees one day and 85 degrees the next. So I don't think there is ever a time that that you shouldn't seal those wounds. But uh, I think that winter is an ideal time to do it because we do have fewer insects. And with it being so dry, we have fewer you know, of the spore mats out there because, of course, the the disease spores come from red oaks. Live oaks don't make those disease spores. But And, and you know, Howard and I talk about this, and he's not nearly as gung-ho on the painting as I am. But, again, they don't see the devastation from oak wilt up in that area that we do down here. And uh, mm-hmm. I just think it's it's worth the effort. And nowadays, even if you're using a pole saw to do the pruning, you can get one of these uh, little devices you can put on the end of a 20-foot pole, and you simply you know, pull a cord and spray, so it's not like you have to climb up in the tree to paint that wound after you make it. So, you know, I'm, I'm big on painting. I think this is an ideal time of the year to do it, but uh, I don't agree with anybody that says, oh, you don't have to seal the wounds uh, because it's wintertime. I think it's important to do it uh, all, all four seasons. Okay, great. Thank you so much. 
The one other thing, and you probably already know this because you obviously are a good gardener and know plants, but be sure that whoever is doing the pruning, whether it's you or somebody else or a professional, be sure they understand the concept of cutting just outside that branch collar. I mean, early in my career, I thought we made a flush cut, and I learned later that was totally wrong. You've got to look at that little projection, might be a quarter of an inch, might be three-eighths of an inch on a really big limb, maybe even bigger. But your cut needs to be made just outside that branch collar so the wound will heal quickly and completely. Okay. Thank you so much. I appreciate your help. I appreciate your call. You have a wonderful weekend. You too. Thank you. Bye. Mm -hmm. Bye Bye-bye. All right, let's see here. Next up is going to be Martha. Good morning, Martha. Yes, I was talking to some gardeners, and one said she had a problem with root rot. The other said, put some whole round cornmeal on it, and I realized I didn't know what you did for cotton root rot. (laughs) I said, I'll call Bob Webster. (laughs) Well, you've just brought up a a subject that uh, is near and dearer to my heart and, and, in effect, very, very misunderstood and that there is a specific disease called cottony root rot. And mm-hmm. obviously it's something that originated on cotton crops, and there are some mm-hmm. plants which are pretty susceptible to it, uh, oh, mainly altheas and um, hibiscus and some other things. But a lot of people just group you know, all different things that would cause the roots to rot into one big clump and um, the truth is that most root rotting problems are not disease related on some specific things yes you can have cottony root rot but where people have roots rotting on plants the 99 percent of the time the problem is simply lack of oxygen in the soil and of that 99 percent of the time is that people simply are not letting the soil dry properly between waterings and no matter what you do if you're not if you don't have oxygen in the soil the roots on your plants are going to rot i tell people all the time there's no such thing as too much water but there is always too often and uh, if you don't let plants dry to the proper point between waterings you will get root rotting and uh, there's not really anything you can do about that you can use some things like garret juice like super thrive to try to get those roots restarted but you you need to know what's causing the roots to rot to begin with now in the case of the true cottony root rot which like i say Mm -hmm. is only going to affect a handful of plants um, there is a uh, product out on the market called actinovate it's a natural thing that will work against cottony root rot uh the trichoderma fungus that grows on the cornmeal will help Mm -hmm. in working against root rot and simply using things like the mycorrhizal fungal inoculants when you're planting susceptible plants seems to do a lot to discourage cottony root rot from ever getting started so um I, i guess the first thing in talking to your friend is to find out if it is indeed cottony root rot or if it is just root rot if it is just root rot it's almost certainly either a soil issue or a watering issue if it is cottony root rot that's a specific disease that you want to take other steps to control does that make sense yes well yes this is in a farmer cotton field okay and do you know growing in and what what kind of plants are they concerned about I do not remember what she said. It was a flowering plant, okay. but uh, 
<laughs> we got off on several other things. And I'm not, <laughs> Isn't that fun? You get to talk into a good gardener, and you never <laughs> run out of topics. But um, it could have been Althea's. It could have been uh, Hollyhocks. But in general, I would um, uh, I would look for and see if you can find some actinovate. It's not nearly as common as it once was. But okay. um, at the very least, uh, treat that area with a whole ground cornmeal. Get some good trichoderma growing in there. And actually dust uh, with the actinovate, dust the root system. When the, you take, if you're, if you're planting a plant as opposed to a seed, when you take mm-hmm. it out of the container, actually dust some of it onto the roots. Um, if it's something like if this person has thoughts of developing, developing an apple orchard or something like that, go somewhere else to do it because apples are so susceptible to cotton root rot. Uh, that it can be that it can be very problematic, but in a garden situation, no, I think you can get it under control without any real big problems. Okay, I will pass that along. And another question: Could you quickly tell me the fruit trees that have to have another tree to reproduce? Well, it's more varietal. Um, with oh, okay. with pears, all pears need a second tree. Uh, with peaches, all peaches will do better with a second tree. But when it comes to persimmons, when it comes to plums, um, with those, there's some varieties which are self-fertile. There are some varieties which require a pollinator. And in the case of persimmons, there are some varieties that will actually produce fruit without pollination. So in general, peaches and pears... Uh, and apples, I would include in that group, you always plan on having at least a couple of different varieties out there. Uh, on the plums, you know, some of them are self-fertile like Santa Rosa. Some of them need a pollinator like Methley and Bruce. So it okay. uh, uh, depends on which fruit tree, but you call me and I'll always do my best to let you know. Okay. Thank you very much. You're sure welcome, Have a Martha. nice day. You do the same. Bye. Thank you. Bye. All right, let's get back to these phone lines for one more call, and that would be Wayne. Good morning, Wayne. Good morning, Bob. Always enjoy the weekend's advice. I got a couple questions. For you. That's what I'm here for. All right, I got a couple of yellow bells down at uh, Shades of Green last year, and they grew just wonderfully. Mm-hmm. Now they're all brown. Do they need to be cut back, or do they need any attention? They'll look nicer if you cut them back, um, but, you know, you don't have to do a thing. The Esperanza or Yellow Bells, the the problem with it is that, you know, you can't really tell how far back the stem, the trunk, whatever you want to call it, is frozen. Obviously, the foliage has frozen, which is a very common thing. And um, if you want the plant to be more compact, Yes, that it will need to be cut back because uh, chances are most of the trunk isn't frozen. Probably it's just most of the foliage, and it's going to want to branch out six feet off the ground. It's going to be 15 feet high before the summer's over, and if you've got room for a plant that's big, then that's just fine, uh, assuming that we don't get you know another hard freeze later, which we certainly can in January. So it's really up to you whether you prune it back. I One thing I would suggest is if you decide to cut it back you know way back wait a little while to do it wait until about the middle of february because with the warm days we've been having and what we have four days this week when it was in the 70s um cutting it back could stimulate it to start putting on new growth too soon which would then freeze back which then could really set the plant back so 
if you want to cut it back, I'm going to be looking at maybe February 15th or sometime in that time frame. Uh, but it's it's totally up to you. The, it doesn't make any difference at all of the plant, whether you cut it off or not. If you think it's partially frozen, you want to know how far back it's frozen, you almost have to let it start coming out. And then let's say you've got a plant that's eight feet tall and the new growth is coming out four feet above the ground. You simply know that everything above that point is frozen, and that gives you a real good you know, spot of where to cut it back. But it, it's really strictly up to you. That plant's going to be beautiful whether you do everything or nothing. Okay, that leads right to my next question about my roses. Mm-hmm. My knockout roses and my Chrysler Imperial are just looking wonderful, lots of good blooms. Are we still going to do our pruning next month, mid-February? If you need to reduce the size or change the shape. Now, your Chrysler Imperial is probably a grafted rose, and it will help to maintain the vigor. That one I probably would prune for sure. Your knockouts are on their own roots, And you can certainly keep them more compact. You can make the growth and the blooming fuller. But I'm not going to tell you it's really necessary to prune the knockouts. That's strictly a matter of size and shape. Uh, But the timing is going to be the same. We're going to do it around Valentine's Day. If we choose to prune, like I say, your Chrysler Imperial, I definitely would prune that one. Your knockouts is just totally up to you. Thank you much, Bob. Enjoy your show. Well, I appreciate your call. Then you get out and have a great weekend. Thanks, Wayne. All right, okay, bye. All right. Well, I tell you what I'm going to do. I don't have time to take another gardening call, but I am going to open the phone lines up because I'm looking at Martin Bama sitting in there getting ready to do the home improvement show. I can't see around the corner. I can't tell if that Jim's in there with him or one of his other guests. But, uh, okay, Martin and Jim are in there, and they're ready for your phone call. So if you want to be first in line, it would be a good time to dial. Right now, I will tell you that this is a great day to fertilize, especially after that rain last night that some folks got. Great time to put out your uh, organic fertilizer. Great time to plant pansies. Oh, my gosh, there's just no reason to have a drab yard. And if you've not seen all the new colors and new varieties in pansies, yeah, you simply won't believe it. Snapdragons, they are beautiful now. And as long as it stays mild, they're going to bloom through the winter months. If it gets cold, they're just going to keep growing and really put on a show in the spring. So lots of things to put out to add color to your yard. And then there's your vegetable garden. Time to plant so many different things out there from broccoli to cauliflower to seeds like radishes and carrots and beets and turnips and onions. Oh, man, time to get those onions in the ground. Asparagus fruits are in now. Time to get some more asparagus planted. I can come up with plenty of good chores for you, including maybe some new houseplants to clean up the air in your home. Lots of things to talk about. We'll do more of it tomorrow morning from 8 till 11. Thank you for joining me here on KTSA Radio, San Antonio, Texas.